Good evening, little masters, and welcome once again to the Prancing Pony Podcast, where the good stuff has been delayed. You see, we were using the white ships of the Teleri for delivery, and, well, you can thank Feanor for that. I knew there was a reason I didn't like that guy that much. West to hell, my friends. I'm Sean Marchese, and joining me from the uttermost west, the earth trembles beneath his feet <laughs> when he's not sleeping from <clears throat> weariness and contentment. The Topaz to White Orme. Alan Sisto. Thank you, Sean. Well, you know, we are going to run out of cool stuff to say about Tolkis one of these days, so uh, I hope you have a backup plan. Well, folks, we, <laughs> we are taking a big trip in distance and in time tonight. For the last several episodes, we've been with the uh, the Elves of the Light, the Calaquendi, the Vanyar, the Noldor, and the Teleri, what's left of them, that is, over in Valinor. Uh, tonight, we go back in time several centuries, uh, actually a few millennia, and back to Middle-earth in Chapter 10 of the Sindar. Or as I like to say, Alan, we're in a gray area. You like that? Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be here all night. Uh, We will get to visit Thingol and Melian again, uh, encounter the dwarves for the first time since their creation by Aule, and we're going to see the first battle in the Wars of Beleriand. And Luthien. We mustn't forget Luthien. That's right. Luthien uh, too. Yeah. (laughs) We can't forget her. But first, Sean, does does Barlaman have anything in his bag for us tonight? He does. He does. We've uh, we've received more than a few threats from Feanor apologists out there. Um, <laughs> Are they going to burn our ships? We, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nothing we have to take too seriously, I don't think. They haven't gotten as far as forging weapons yet. But we also received a really, really amazing essay on uh, one of our little outro jokes. Uh, do you want to take a flying leap? And guess which one it was? Oh, 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 oh. I think you're trying to tell me something, Sean. Flying. Mm. Flying. Hmm. Mm. Could it be the 5,000-word essay we received on whether Balrogs have wings? That's the one, Alan. Woo-hoo. Uh, one of our listeners, Tom H., crafted a wonderfully clever essay of exactly 5,000 words to answer the question. I was amazed about that. That was really good. <laughs> it was. He, he got it spot on. And I don't want to spoil the surprise, so I'm just going to direct you listening at home to check it out at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com where we link to the full essay, mm-hmm. truly, truly a thing of brilliance. I mean, we're talking PhD dissertation right here. Yeah, it really is. And and exactly 5,000 words. And boy, does he make the point. Yeah. Well, you're going to get no argument from me, but that may be because I entirely agree with his conclusion. Um, is there anything else from Barnuman, the thrice worthy and beloved? <laughs> yes, actually. Uh, <laughs> fittingly for tonight's episode, we have a couple of questions about Melian and her ah, family back in Beleriand. So good timing. Yeah, so if you recall, when we last left Thingol and Melian uh, back in episode, uh, excuse me, back in chapter four, mm-hmm. we mentioned that they would have a daughter, Luthien Tenuviel, and so we got some questions back then about uh, their relationship and their daughter, uh, and both of the questions are sort of in a similar vein. Okay. So the first one comes to us from Tanya P. Tanya is one of our frequent commentators. She's out in New York, and she says, mm-hmm. "Here are my musings on your latest episode. I love how your comments." Even the ones spoken in jest get me thinking of something that I wouldn't have considered otherwise. Thank you, Tanya. This time it was your, Alan, mention of Melian's husband hunting. (laughs) Oh, this is going to be like my trophy wife comment, wasn't it? Yeah, right, right. Uh, You believed that she was not husband hunting, but I think that maybe she actually was. Let Hmm. me explain. Melian was made aware by Iluvatar of his plan of passing on Ainurin divinity into the races of the earth, and that it was to be accomplished through her union with one of them. For that reason, she was actively seeking this union, 
The first clue to that lies in her timing of leaving Valinor. She left when the elves awoke, as if on cue. True. The second clue is that she didn't roam Middle-earth randomly, but stayed in the region where the majority of elves were known to be at the time, which was Beleriand. Target-rich environment. Yep. <laughs> right? Uh, the rest is accomplished through Elway's free will. There is also a third clue that's found later in the book. When she casts the girdle around her kingdom, which we'll see at the end of this chapter... That's true. Melian already knows that sooner or later, someone will come whom the girdle will not deter, and that someone will complete the final stage of Eru's plan. Wow, that's really insightful. Isn't it? Yeah, it's that's... a really, really uh, well-thought-out theory, um, as we've I... come to expect from yeah. Tanya, actually. She's, uh, she's one of the best at laying out this kind of stuff. Uh -huh. And, I, I mean, I think, she's, I think she's right. I think she's, she's got a point. Something. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely all by Iluvatar's design. Um, and it was for the purpose, she said, of bringing among both elves and men a strain of this Ainurin blood um, mm -hmm. that was with Iluvatar before Ea. Um, we did say as much in that episode, or we alluded to it if we didn't mm -hmm. say those exact words. Um, and we talked about the fact that what often seems like random chance is usually yeah. a sign of Iluvatar's hand at work. Yeah, fate or, you know, oh, wow, right. huh. Huh, what a coincidence. Yeah, right. There what are I, no coincidences. Handy <laughs> coincidence. Well, no, usually it's Iluvatar's hand. Yep. Um, the question really then is just how much Melian actually knew. Mm -hmm. um, Tanya makes an excellent point. She may have known everything, and she may have positioned herself to be in the right place at the right time. Mm. Uh, we will see in this chapter tonight that she does have foresight, True. and she sees beyond just the first age. Um, so, yeah, maybe she knew exactly what Iluvatar was planning. That's at a minimum, yeah, I thought so. I, I would say at a minimum, I would think she probably felt a sort of an inexplicable urge to be in Beleriand at the right time, um, okay. you know, so that Elway could wander by. Yeah. Um, not to, well, this is something that you know more about, but you know, it okay. just it seems to me in um, like in biblical stories and things like that, you know, God's choos chosen instruments usually sort of feel a call. That they can't True. quite explain. They just sort of they they know where they need to be, and and they just they need to be there, but they don't know why. And I, and I wonder if maybe hmm. there could have been something of that in Melly, and she just kind of felt an urge to be there without knowing exactly. That's an interesting why. point, and that actually kind of when you when you bring up that last point, it does make me think that maybe she had some some conscious awareness because yeah, because actually um, in in most biblical stories, at least the ones that I can think of off the top of my head, uh, but if you look in the Old Testament, you look at the prophets. You know, God gives them exact instructions. I mean, where to go, what to do, um, you know, what to wear. I mean, everything. They they lay out all, he lays out all the details um, and they go do it because God has told them to do it. Mm -hmm. So it's more than just a call. It's usually, at least in, in the Old Testament stories that I can it's more of a command. It's more of a command. Like. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's an interesting point because that, that little thing that you brought up at the end does make me think that uh, being who she is, being a Maya, yeah, it it actually makes sense. She may not even just been specifically husband hunting. She might have been specifically Elway hunting even. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised if it was that specific. Look for this guy, Melian. Yeah, he's really tall. Right. Exactly. And he likes, to go in, he likes to go for long walks alone in the woods. That's on his yeah. uh, Match.com profile. Right, um, right, exactly. <laughs> but it, it's an intriguing, it really intriguing really uh, couple of points raised by Tanya. And uh, yeah, mm -hmm. maybe, it, maybe it wasn't pure chance. Maybe she, she really knew what she was doing. Yeah, whereas I think other times where we see Iluvatar's hand at work, uh, the, the people that are being used by Iluvatar's hand, let's say, for example, Bilbo finding the ring, 
mm-hmm. um, you know, where he was essentially manipulated into that. And I don't mean manipulated in a negative sense. I just mean he certainly wasn't aware of sure, his yeah. role in fulfilling any sort of prophecy. He was a chess piece, a piece on a board. Right, that was, exactly. That was like like Gandalf yeah. says, you're just one small person one in the small world person after in all. in the world after all, yeah. Which is a, one of the best closing lines ever, really. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait till we get to that in about, yeah. you know, four years. But uh, yeah, right. <laughs> actually, it won't be that long. I think we were looking at Maybe our two. timeline on Maybe this, two. and it's only a year before we're done with this. Yeah. And then it we'll be tackling The Hobbit. So the, probably two years. Yeah, because that's only... What is that? How many chapters? 12? Something like that? 19. 19, that's right. 12, 19, 37. Whatever, you know. It's all something. It's all more than two. <laughs> it's right. <laughs> I can't count past two these days. Um, right. But yeah, uh, so yeah, that'll probably be, if it's 19, then it'll be 19 episodes. So it'll probably be two and a half to two and a half years. But so we'll, we'll get there. I think we'll actually oh, yeah. get there. I think so. You know, it might be, uh, you know, when we talk about things like unfinished tales, that might be a pipe dream that we're still on the air then. But uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's realistic to think we'll get to the end of The Hobbit at least. I think we can make it to the end of The Hobbit. <laughs> um, so, yeah, oh, fascinating, man. fascinating insight. And thank you, Tanya. That uh, that really did tie things together. I I have to say, I, I think you're probably onto something there. I think so, um, yeah. And once again, she has corrected me. Yes, she's she's good at that. She's you, astounding at that. Actually, getting getting a comment from Tanya is always a, a reason to to stop and think. We've we've probably missed something because she's uh, yeah. she knows the man. She knows those history of Middle oh, Earth yeah. texts better than forward, uh, better than me. That's for sure. You, you, better than me for sure. Yeah. So then we have something so, else. Uh, we have another question along those same lines, right? We did. Uh, we got a que- another question from Nakat, another, another friend of the regular. show. Yeah. Yeah. She's one of our friends in Lahore, Pakistan. Mm-hmm. She writes in saying, the Ainur generally don't have kids, but Melian did. Mm-hmm. She says, granted, Luthien was half and half Ainur and uh, firstborn or elf, uh, but it does show that the Valar could have children too if they chose. I, I'd what do you think to, of that? Well, I'd probably have to disagree with that with the conclusion that she draws from it. Um, you know, she's right to say that Ainur generally don't have kids. We're given two examples of Ainur that do. Uh, we already talked about one, and that was uh, uh, Ungoliant, uh, who we came to the conclusion that uh, she was a Maya. Assume, right, assuming she is a Maya, yeah. Uh, and that and that she was able to reproduce. Um, but like we see with, with Melian, she reproduced because she mated with a, you know, flesh and blood, uh, you know, mortal... Yeah. Mortal. I say that when I'm talking about Elway, but I mean sure, sure. different Ter- maybe than... Maybe terrestrial or Right, terrestrial is a good one. Incarnate. I like that word. We use that a lot, and it's a good one. Um, and that's my take on this, is that Melian was only able to procreate precisely because she married one of the children of Iluvatar. Mm-hmm. Uh, if she was married to another Maya or, or to a Vala, uh, I honestly don't think offspring would have been possible because we see marriage... Um, you know, between the Valar, for instance, and presumably also amongst the Maiar, uh, but with, with no offspring. And it would seem weird that it never, ever, ever happens except in these two instances, and both of them share that one commonality. It doesn't—it just yeah. doesn't seem to me that it was part of Iluvatar's plan to allow the Ainur to reproduce. And the, and I think we got to understand the nature of what they are. An Ainu, whether Vala, Vala or Maya, an Ainu is an offspring of Iluvatar's thought. Mm-hmm. So they can't reproduce something that's of Iluvatar's thought, right? They're there. They're there to subcreate, not they're, to procreate. Exactly. That's a wow. Yeah. That's a great little distinction. <laughs> but because elves and men were designed to procreate by the by right. Iluvatar himself, uh, Thingol could have kids. So it was more about right. the fact that Thingol could reproduce. And right. So he I was a, even though he married Amaya. 
Um, yeah. And so that was kind I of the exception that. that proves the rule. Um, in fact, well, and I, then the, what's what's sort of intriguing about that is that once uh, once that that rule had been established, or you know, once uh, once Melian uh, mm-hmm. had procreated with with Thingol, you know, then you get Ungoliant, assuming that she's actually a Maya. Sure. Um, you know, is it does the rule now apply to any Ainu that chooses to mate with an incarnate creature? I I don't know. I mean, I my my hunch is yes because the incarnate creature was intended by Iluvatar to reproduce. Right. So by virtue of the incarnate creature, that's exactly. why Amaya is able exactly. to reproduce. Though, you know, we would have to assume that, uh, with the exception of Melian, only uh, a corrupted Ainu would, would choose to do that. Because, that's true. Because well, yeah. it would be going against nature. Unless Iluvatar had specifically instructed right. them to, like he did with, with like Melian. he appears he might have done with Melian, yeah. Right, yeah. Interesting. That's a good question. It's very interesting. Good stuff. And, and uh, you know, it's yeah. it's also worth pointing out. I, I I will point this out really quickly before we move sure, on. Just sure. that uh, in the early versions of the Legendarium, if you look at things like the Book of Lost Tales, right. uh, the Valar did have children. Yes. yes. Um, but uh, and and I'm sure somebody might point that out. Well, the Valar did have children. Well, yes, in that early version, but yeah. that's really not considered canon- canonical by the time. No. You know, we get down to the Silmarillion, and, and clearly in the in the finished published Silmarillion, the intention was that the Valar did not have children. Exactly, and that's the thing. There are a lot of uh, things that show up in the Book of Lost Tales that get changed. Mm-hmm. And while it's always interesting to look at that as as a means of you know the, the development of the story, uh, when when the published version conflicts with the Book of Lost Tales, clearly the published version wins. Always go with the published version. Uh, yep. You know, we can look at, for example, or even just later. Usually trumps earlier. Um, I'm thinking yeah. of the fact that uh, elves, um, uh, the reincarnation, like the reincarnation of yeah, elves, yeah, the, the reincarnation of elves that went away, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. eventually became they be, they become rehoused as adults because that right. was uh, more consistent with his uh, with his personal beliefs as well. Right. Yeah. So that's a good yeah, one. you just you know published trumps unpublished and later trumps later earlier. trumps earlier. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way of thinking of it. So. Good, good stuff, and I hope that we have some more questions next time when we get to of Sun and Moon. But uh, tonight, let's just dig into this discussion. I, I thought this was going to be a short chapter when I first looked at it, but the more I looked at it, the longer it's going to be. I don't think we're going to approach <laughs> the two hours of uh, two episodes ago with the first half of Return of the Noldor, I mean of, um, of the Flight of the Noldor, mm-hmm. but uh, this won't be a short one. Before we get into the discussion, we want to uh, suggest that you pull up uh, a secondary resource to use as we go through the chapter. So I know some of you are listening on mobile devices and you might be doing something else. You might not be able to pull up a web page uh, and look at it. Um, if you're driving, please do not do oh, that. Oh, goodness, no, please. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but if you are at a place where you can pull yeah. up uh, you know, a, a website web on a screen, mm-hmm. uh, please do. Because this is a geography-heavy chapter and we think you'll benefit from a good map. And we've found one. Uh, we suggest going to a website called loaderproject.com. That's L-O-T-R, like Lord of the Rings, project.com. Uh, and when you get to their homepage, uh, the first thing you'll see, I think, is the family tree, right? Mm-hmm. Which is which is kind of neat, but uh, we don't want you to worry about right about that right now. Yeah, because it's um, probably going to be more confusing than, than helpful yeah, for the newer yeah. readers. Um, but what you'll want to do, actually, is click on Maps up at the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, near the upper left. And then after the map of Middle-earth shows up, don't get distracted by that really cool map. You can explore it later when you're not listening to us. Um, you'll use it when we get to Lord of the Rings, of course. But um, click instead on Map of Balerion. That's over in the upper right-hand corner of the map. So again, lotrproject.com. Pause us if you need to pull this up first. 
um, and then click on Maps at the upper left, and then Map of Beleriand in the upper right. Mm-hmm. Sean and I are going to have this map up on our monitors as we go through this podcast, so we'll be referencing it fairly often, and we'll definitely use it again, even if the only other time we use it is Chapter 14, chapter 14 for of sure. Beleriand yep. and its Realms. Yep, definitely. Um, and one other thing, we want to give a shout-out to um, to the folks who put this together. Uh, it is a site that relies on donations. It's As you can imagine, when you look at this site and explore it, there was a ton of effort, a ton of love, and a ton of work put into it. So, um, you know, we want to encourage you guys as our listeners to, to throw them a dollar or two, uh, you know, maybe more if you're, if you're able to, uh, to just, you know, thank them and, and help them be able to keep this uh, amazing resource online for all yeah. those Tolkien fans. Uh, so now that you have that and it up, really is cool. It really it is, is an amazingly amazing cool. Yeah. And you'll be able to look at other stuff like timelines and some really cool stats. I mean, it's the, the amount of effort they put into this. I, sh- I say they. It's pretty much one guy. Um, is is absolutely astounding, but um, yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll put a link up on the website too, mm-hmm. so uh, so those of you listening to this later can yeah, uh, and on find the Facebook it. page too. Yep, yep. Uh, okay, well, now that we have that little thing out of the way, let's go ahead and get into the discussion itself. Um, I'm going to start by well, reading the the first paragraph. We'll just start right there. Okay. Now, as has been told, the power of Elway and Melian increased in Middle Earth, and all the elves of Beleriand from the mariners of Círdan to the wandering hunters of the Blue Mountains beyond the river Gellion, owned Elway as their lord. Elu Thingol, he was called, King Greymantle, in the tongue of his people. They are called the Sindar, the Grey Elves of Starlit Beleriand. And although they were more Aquendi, under the lordship of Thingol and the teaching of Melian, they became the fairest and the most wise and skillful of all the elves of Middle-earth. So we'll start. We'll stop there. Uh, okay. We've got a couple of a couple of big points here. We get the lordship of of Eluthingal. We get the teaching of Melian. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that these this the Sindar are incredibly wise, skillful, and fair. It, uh, it raises them above the the level. Oh, yeah. of, the, of all the, the, you know, other... the level of enlightenment of all the other Moraquendi. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, especially uh, of the Avari, the ones that mm-hmm. you know had refused the journey earlier. But even the other. Um, the other Eldar, the ones that had began that journey. Um, right. And it, you know, has a large part to do with the fact that they're under the, the kingship of Thingol, who has seen the light of Amon. Right, right. And under the, and you know, the teaching Melian. of Melian, they've got a Maya yep. amongst them. Yep, yep. So definitely uh, some big things there. Yeah. And, and I think you had a thing about the tying Feanor in here, right? Yeah, well, there's this idea that all the elves of Beleriand owned Elway, or Eluthingal, we're about to start calling him, as their lord. So remember Feanor's big thing that he, you know, he said in, in Flight of the Noldor, about, and even before that, about winning great realms back in Middle-earth. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the elves in Middle-earth already have a lord. Um, they're not looking for a new one. So, you know, it's like, you know, uh, I will what, ask what is Feanor going to find? I will ask him if he needs another lord, but I don't think he'd be very keen. He already has one, you see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I had to get a Python uh, reference in You there. had to get a Python reference in. Well, <laughs> he already has one. Um, yeah, yeah exactly. you're right. Like, What's he going to do? I mean, I guess he just, well, he's going to do what he did to the Teleri. I mean, <laughs> Well, exactly. You're, you know, he's already... He's already struck out at the Teleri once. You know, he's, the only way he's going to win great realms is by taking them from somebody else. Yeah. He doesn't know that yet, but no. we know that now. And why not? These are more, in the case of Thingol, he's another uh, Teleri. 
Right. You know, he's the, the brother of the guy who's who, and that's going to play really well when they get back. Yes. But we'll get to yeah, that in a few chapters. Oh, man. When he finds out about that, that's not going to go well. Not a pleasant time. Nope. Um, but one thing but is then, interesting is we find out um, in the very next line that this is the end of the first age of the chaining of Melkor. Yeah. So yeah. We, we really kind of need to talk a little bit about timeline. Um, so we see that Luthien's born at the end of the first age of Melkor's imprisonment. Now, this is where we have to pull in some more information, right? We pulled in some stuff from uh, from Morgoth's ring, specifically from the Annals of Amon. We know that um, Christopher Tolkien says there that time indeed began with the beginning of Ea, and in that beginning the Valar came into the world. But the measurement which the Valar made of the ages of their labors is not known to any of the children of Iluvatar until the first flowering of Telperion and Valinor. We've talked about that, the, the mm-hmm. years of the trees. Mm-hmm. After that point, the Valar counted time by the ages of Valinor. Each age contained a hundred of the years of the Valar. So you'd think, oh, an age is only a hundred years, except that each of the years of the Valar was almost 10 years. In fact, and I don't know how they came up with this number, but it's like 9.52. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure there's a reason. I, I, I'm sure there was something in a footnote about how that was calculated, and I could pull that up at some point, but... Uh, not right now because that's I only have that in hard copy, but yeah. um, it it is nine point five two, so or nine point five. It's something like that. It's just you know a little a hair over nine and a half, um, and we do get a little bit from that. We actually do start getting a little bit of referencing of time. Um, mm-hmm. We do know that he was sentenced to his imprisonment in the year forty six hundred, okay. uh, first age, but that's forty six hundred Valinorian years. So this is a very long time from the, the birth of the trees. And then he was released 300 years later, but that's not 300 of our years. That's almost 3,000. 300 Valian yeah. years. Or, yeah, so... Yeah, 300 Valinorian years. So... Um, so we're talking, you know, we're talking something like 40... I mean, like, my math is going to be really rough, but like 45,000 years, something yeah, like that. Yeah, 45,000 years or so between the time of the trees to the time uh, that Melkor was sentenced. And then 300 years later, or 3,000 years later, in terms of our years, when he was released. That is so, mind-boggling. Isn't it? So she was born in, um, in 4,700, at the end, of the, the, uh, the end of the first age of his imprisonment. Uh, so we know that, and the Valinorian years are measured, by the way, until the year 5,000 when the moon rises. Okay. So we saw the moon rise at the very end of last chapter, and we'll get to understand how the moon rose uh, when we get to next In our chapter. next episode, yeah. But we know that that happened in the year 5000. So she was around for 300 Valinorian years plus 464 years after that when she met Baron. So she was 3,419 years old when wow. she first meets Baron in about, what, nine chapters. So just to get a feel for the vastness cradle, of the time. Cradle robber. Cradle robber. How did I know that was coming? Um yeah. But she does look great for her age. She does. It. You know what? The elves really developed the first plastic surgery. Nobody knows that. <laughs> Shh! Don't tell anyone. Elvish, elvish magic. Elvish magic. It's, a, it's a fair. It's an elvish art. A fairy art. Oil of Olay. <laughs> Oil of Olay. <laughs> I almost did a spit take on my microphone, Sean. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> right over the plate. Oh, that was beautiful. That was a beautiful thing. 
Oh, uh, we might Thank get you. mail on that one. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, so I just had to do that little time <laughs> sidebar to just help folks out with uh, just how vast these times are. I mean, this chapter covers an insane amount of time, mm-hmm. thousands yeah. of years uh, between Luthien's birth and It really is truly mind-boggling, and it's, what, nine pages? <laughs> I know. This, is, this may actually be the longest chapter aside yeah. from chapter one of the beginning of days where we right. literally don't know how right. long that was. But um, anyway, so um, let me go ahead and read that that second half of the paragraph now that we have yeah, that in mind. Let's talk about Luthien, yeah. So at the end of the first age with the chaining of Melkor, when all the earth had peace and the glory of Valinor was at its noon, there came into the world Luthien, the only child of Thingol and Melian. Though Middle-earth lay, for the most part, in the sleep of Yavanna, in Beleriand, under the power of Melian, there was life and joy, and the bright stars shone as silver fires. And there, in the forest of Neldoreth, Luthien was born, and the white flowers of Nifredil came forth to greet her as stars from the earth. I love that image. That Isn't that beautiful? Greet her as stars from the image. Uh, as, as the, greet her as stars from the earth. It's there's like, no flowers because everything's in the sleep of Yvanna, but the Nifferdil show up, you know? Yeah. Melian's got some yeah. power. And the idea of stars from the earth, I just love this. Uh, it just reminds me of a, it's a bringing together of the heavens, the stars, uh, and the yeah. earth. And Which, and that's that's Luthien, isn't it? You're because right, she's, it is. She's a creature she's of a, angelic or, you know, Ainu blood and terrestrial blood wow. from her father. Wow, that's that's a really cool insight and beautiful yeah, too. Yeah, it's so cool. That is cool. Um, There's all these little things about it. The way you know, I always feel like Luthien and and Melian and Thingol they're so tied to the land they live in. Oh, they really um, are. In a way that you know we just don't. I mean, it, it's one of those real legendary kind of mythical things that you see a lot. You know, yeah, maybe in, in Arthurian legend and things like that. But uh, you really see it a lot with them. It's it's really cool. You do. Wow. Well, you know, and there was one other thing I, we probably should have touched on this earlier uh, because it's geography related. But I yeah. I noted at the beginning of the chapter that all the elves of Beleriand from the Mariners of Círdan to the Wandering Hunters of the Blue Mountains beyond the River Gellion. So if you're looking at that map, we did have you pull up Loader Project for a reason. Um, the Mariners of Círdan were in the Phallas. So if you look in the middle of that map of Beleriand, there's Doriath. Now right. look all the way to the west coast and south just a little bit. There's the Phallas. It's right, okay. should probably right on the edge of your screen if you're on the, the default magnification. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so there it is. There's uh, there's a river that goes there to Eglarest, and then you can kind of see that bay between Phallas and West Beleriand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the area that Círdan is. And then you have all the way over to Doriath in the middle. River Gellion is the, is the north-south river all the way to the right, uh, just to the west of, uh, of the Ered Luin. So if you're looking at the map, that's between the, the regions of Estelad and Thargelion. Yes, between East Beleriand or Estelad there and Thargelion. Mm-hmm. That north-south river is the river Gelion with all those uh, tributaries in Osirian down in the south. Mm-hmm. That's a very important river. It's not as important as Sirion, which is the one that splits Dor- or goes just to the, uh, to the west of Doriath and splits right. the other forests there. But um, So that's all of Beleriand. It's a huge realm. Yep. Uh, so even though we later see that Thingol and Melian will eventually kind of close in Doriath and Neldoreth uh, behind the girdle, their realm stretches all the way from the coast to the mountains. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a huge realm. 
It is the entire east-to-west expanse of Beleriand, yeah, really. Yeah, and we don't get a north-south here, but um, <laughs> I believe at this point it doesn't. It, its northern line would probably be uh, the arid Gorgoroth, uh, and and perhaps the the pass there uh, with, mm-hmm. with Sirion. The pass uh, of Ar- is it the pass of Anach? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, near Tol Sirion uh, mm-hmm. on, in the on the west, and then up by Nimring right. in the east. So that that would more than likely be the northern border. I don't have any idea how far south. I don't know whether it uh, whether they commanded stuff all the way down to the Bay of Balar. Though we do know that the uh, um, uh, the Falathrim did end up going there. We'll get to that later. Right. Right. So anyway, just kind of wanted to lay out a little bit of the land. Really, the, uh, really huge realm. It is. That's, it's a big realm. This is not a minor control. kingship. That's right. really the point that we're trying to make here. So Right. Well, so what do we get after the most beautiful thing in all of Middle Earth? We get... <laughs> <laughs> we get the dwarves. <laughs> and they're, they're, a, they're a stocky and practical people. Um, we haven't seen them since that chapter they two. Are. No, actually. No. Um, when they were, uh, if you recall in chapter two, they were created by Aule, uh, got his hand slapped by Iluvatar a little bit, and Iluvatar <laughs> put them to sleep. Um, yes. But now we actually get them appearing, and I, I'd like to go ahead and read uh, yeah. from that first paragraph Please there. Please do. Themselves they named Khazad, but the Sindar called them Naugrim, the stunted people, and Gonhirim, masters of stone. Far to the east were the most ancient dwellings of the Naugrim, but they had delved for themselves great halls and mansions, after the manner of their kind, in the eastern side of Eridluin. And those cities were named in their own tongue Gabilgothal and Tumunzahar. To the north of the great height of Mount Dolmed was Gabilgothal, which the elves interpreted in their tongue Belagost, that is Mickleberg. And southward was delved Tumunzahar, by the elves named Nograd, the Hollowbold. Greatest of all the mansions of the dwarves was Khazadum, the Dwarodelf, Hathadrand in the elvish tongue, that was afterwards, in the days of its darkness, called Moria. But it was far off in the mountains of mist beyond the wide leagues of Eriador, and to the Eldar came but as a name and a rumor from the words of the dwarves of the Blue Mountains. And that's that's actually way off the map, because to yep. place this in context, the Arid Luin uh, are the mountains that, if you are looking at a map of Middle-earth, uh, are on the far western shore. These are the, the ones that are to the right. west of the Shire. Um, right. So, yeah. Yeah. So this is – Moria is way to the east and to the south uh, of uh, of this realm. And that's why the elves of Beleriand are not having any kind of concourse with the dwarves of Moria. But they are oh, no. hearing about them yeah. uh, from the from these dwarves uh, of the Blue Mountains, the Arid Luin, mm-hmm. uh, in Belagost and Nograd. Yeah. I think it's interest. I think it's interesting that we don't see the dwarves awake. That's we just what see them say. start to appear. Yeah, they uh, just show up. Yeah, but I think that's that's you know really easily explained by the fact that what we're reading is an elvish history. It's written yep, by the true. elves about the mm-hmm. elves primarily. Um, you know, we don't we don't even get uh, definitive answers about men's origin. Um, that's true. Yeah, basically, if the elves, the elves don't, don't know, yeah. yeah, if the elves don't know, it's not in here. <laughs> right. Um, it's you know, and that's something we have to remember is the the fictional framework or the you know the the structure in which his stories fit. In this case, this is a, an elvish tale. Um, I'm yeah. sure that the man's version of the Silmarillion would be quite different. Yeah, um, 
certainly the door. It's sometimes frustrating as a human reader to, <laughs> to want to know. It is. You want to know what the origin is of men yeah. in this world, what the, maybe what the origin of dwarves or origin of other things. But uh, it is a, you know, who might consider it an in-universe document. You know, it's, exactly. it's the elves' own perspective. It's a limited perspective document. It, that's a good way to put it, limited <laughs> perspective. And, you know, it makes me also think of the fact that we don't know, you know, we the elves talk about what, what they know about their their death. We know everything about their death, the, you know, the fact that they get rehoused and the fact that they live as long as Arda does and all of that. Right. Uh, that they're bound to the circles of the world. They don't know what happens to men and they don't know what happens to dwarves. We get a couple of Tolkien's famous some say statements. Right. That's both. true. Yeah. Um, but that's really all we get. And again, it's because it's an elvish, elvish story. Right. Um, right. Now, I well, noticed... We do, get some cool, we do get some cool dwar- uh, dwarvish language here, which True. I like. Hey, before we get into that, because I know we've got a ton of stuff on dwarvish language, I just wanted mm-hmm. to point out the ticking clock that we talk about. Uh, oh, yeah, just yeah. before the passage you read, we learned that this came to pass during the second age of the captivity of Melkor. So now oh, thank you. Yeah, 100 Valinorian years or 982 years um, into the future from the birth of, uh, of Luthien. Okay. So, or we're yeah. somewhere in that range. We're somewhere between... Birth of Luth- Luthien and 982 years later when the Second Age of Captivity would end. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's a good perspective. Cool. So you've got well, some dwarvy, dwarvish yeah, word nerd stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Well, Can't you know me. When this. I see a whole bunch of weird words that are hard to pronounce, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a lot of time <laughs> looking into it. So the first thing we get here is the dwarves' name for themselves, uh, which is Khazad. Right. Uh, and re- remember that Aule actually ta- taught the dwarves their own language, right, mm-hmm. back in Chapter 2. And I'm sure uh, their name for themselves does not mean the stunted people. It probably does not. My no. goodness, the elves lack tact, don't they? They, re- <laughs> they really do. And Gonhirim just sounds like it's some sort of horrible disease. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is there an antibiotic for that? Oh, man. Hey. that's <laughs> Wow, I never thought about that, but I'm, not, I'm never going to forget that now. <laughs> the gun hear him. I got the gun hear him. Oh man. Oh man. Um Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna be in trouble but, for this one. But so let me really back in. I'm gonna have to pause the recording, aren't I? We're just gonna laugh too hard. Okay. Yeah. You know, on, on a word nerd alert, let's actually point out that gun hear him. I this is probably the only word nerd part I'm gonna get, so I'm gonna jump in on it. Um Remember how we talked about Gondor, and we talked about doors before, door being kingdom or realm. So yep. Gondor is the realm of stone, and, you know, you get other other doors. Um, so Gon, so you already know that Gon is stone, and Hirim, right. Hirim, we already know Ro, the Rohirrim, which are the right, horse that's masters. Right, the masters of horses, yeah. So you don't need to already, you don't need to know, T- Tolkien doesn't need to tell you here that this is masters of stone. You already know that Rohirrim are the horse masters, and that Gondor is the, the kingdom of stone. So yeah, Gonhirim... Is the Masters of Stone. Masters of Stone, yeah. Yeah, so you see, the, the language works. It's, it's, it, uh, the, the, rules, uh, the rules are followed throughout. Indeed they are. Well, and the cool thing about this word, Khazad, which is the dwarves' name for themselves, mm-hmm. is that if you've read Lord of the Rings, you've already seen this word. Uh, oh, Gimli's yes. battle cry that he, uh, that he cries out at, at the Battle of Helm's Deep in Two Towers uh, is Baruch Khazad, Khazad Aymenu. Uh, which mm-hmm. means the axes of the dwarves. The dwarves are upon you. Aha. So now there's that translated. If uh, and Khazad Doom, right? 
And Kaza Doom, that's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. The, which is the which we'll see in a moment uh, is translated. Well, actually, we just saw it is translated yeah. as Duaro Delph, Duaro which Delph. is one of one of Tolkien's not so helpful translations. Yeah, actually. exactly. That's like talking about the hill. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, is isn't that just like dwarf city or something like that? Uh, it's dwarf, uh, dwarf delving. Dwarf, dwarf delving. Dwarf delving. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Dwarfs yeah. dug this hole. That's what it means. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Dwarves were here. And maybe it's worth a, a quick uh, look back at the map real quick. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The geography of this is important. So we look first at um, – so look over towards the River Gellion where we were talking earlier. And you'll see that about halfway down the Arid Luin, just to the east of that, is Mount Dolmid sticking out a little bit to the west. Mm-hmm. Um, it, just above all the um, the tributaries to the Osirian – or, I mean, to the Gellion in Osirian. To the Gellion, and, Yeah. So if you look just to the other side of the Arid Luin, you can see there Belagost to the north and Nagrod to the south. And you can mm-hmm. see a dotted road, a dotted path leading along the river there. That's the Dwarf Road. The Dwarf Road, fittingly that, named. That then goes to the the, uh, the ford of the, the river there at the Sarnathrod. Yeah. Um, so from there, they would then, you know, travel through Beleriand to Doriath or perhaps all the way wherever they needed to go. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, though I would imagine it was pretty much to Doriath because now I'm looking at I mean, certainly to the south of Doriath, they wouldn't have wanted to go. Uh, the Fens of Syrian would have made it hard for them to pass through there. They would have had to go all the way down uh, around that mountain range uh, and go over Syrian to the south if they wanted to get into West right. Syrian, like yeah. to get to Nargothrond or anything like that. Right. Um, we know they didn't really go any further. They didn't go to the to the Falas. They, they didn't like the water. So. No, they but did we'll not. Get, like we'll get some sea. more of that. Yeah. So... Um, I want to take a, yeah. a, another moment on uh, on some of these names, just because yeah, just I was about really to ask cool you to do that, my, my word nerd friend. Please do. Yes, please. Uh, thank you. Um, so this, just a couple of just these names here. So the first one, the the northern fortress uh, called Belagost, which in Dwarvish is Gabilgathal. Um, very strong, powerful name there, um, and it's translated as Mickelberg, which <laughs> I yeah, I didn't quite. It's not really all that helpful if you're not a philologist. Um, Tolkien did this a lot. Uh, Mickelberg is actually English, technically. It's just Tolkien often uh, would create new modern English words from Old English or Middle English roots that don't really exist anymore in modern oh, English. Oh, okay. And so Mickelberg is one of these. It actually translates to uh, Mighty Fortress, which oh, is go. pretty much a direct translation of Belagost. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, and then we've got in the south, uh, Tamunzahar, also known as uh, to the elves as Nograd. Um, and it's translated as Hollowbold. Um, Hollowbold actually, I, I looked this up, and Hollowbold is actually a little, literal translation of Tumunzahar, but Nograd actually means something different. Nograd hmm. means dwarf cave. Oh, okay. Again, the, the elves not being too tactful. Nog, like Nogrim. Like Nogrim. Like right, okay. right. Now, like Nogrim. That's the, I think that's the. And Finrod. Cinder Informer. Yeah, that's, no, that's right. That's Felagund. Felagund is the cave thing. Oh, right. Felagund is Lord of Caves. Hewer of Caves, yeah. Or. Yeah, yeah, but I think it is related to Elrond, which is uh, like a star vault, like vaulted a vault, chamber, vaulted ceiling, chamber, chamber with a vaulted ceiling of okay. stars. Yeah, interesting. Rond vaulted ceiling is related to uh, to cave, and we actually see Rond again in uh, the Elvish name of Kazadrond. You're right, right? Ha- and Hathadrond. Yeah, Rond being chamber with a vaulted roof, and then yeah. Hathad just being. Uh, uh, it's not actually a translation; it's just a. Uh, Sort of a, an elvish attempt at pronouncing the word kazad. Oh, okay. So more of a transliteration than a than yeah, a translation. yeah, gotcha, exactly. 
Okay. And then, of course, later on, known as Moria, which means Black Chasm, but uh, but that doesn't happen until later after the uh, the great <clears throat> wing wingless darkness is discovered. There. Uh, I knew you had to get that in there. Um, very cool, very cool. Well, you know, and then uh, we we talk a little bit about um, uh, Casa Doom, and you know that the elves of Eregion uh, in that region. Mm-hmm. Uh, would later be friends with the dwarves of Casa Doom. That's you know, true. We, yeah. we look at the Holland Gate. Uh, Celebrimbor, who is um, uh, a grandson of Feanor, through mm-hmm. Curathir or Curufin. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, it's Curufin, yeah. Curufin, yeah. He's the son of Curufin. Renounces Curufin's actions later on, mm-hmm. um, and of course, he's the guy who forges the Elvish rings, right? Uh, and also is the one who is mentioned by name in. The, um, in the inscription on the, the gate. Inscription on the gate. Right. So, but at this point, remember those are different. Those are different elves. Those aren't the same elves, and that's way into the second age. Right. Um, so the these Sindar are not necessarily. They're not dealing with uh, the elves of uh, the dwarves of Casa Doom. Right. Right. Because um, they're just not there. They're not going that far east. No. No, they're not. Um, well, let me take a take um, a little passage here on how the elves kind of deal with the dwarves, kind of their thoughts about the dwarves, mm-hmm. though I think we can already assume some of those thoughts based on we what We probably know them. a little bit about how they, how they felt stunted about them calling the stunted people. <laughs> and gone here. <him. laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> so um, I'm going to take a little bit down this um, this paragraph here uh, from Nograd and Belagost. I'm going to go down about halfway down or two-thirds of the way down. Ever cool was the friendship between the Nalgrim and the Eldar, though much profit they had one of the other. But at that time, those griefs that lay between them had not yet come to pass, and King Thingol welcomed them. But the Nalgrim gave their friendship more readily to the Noldor in after days than to any others of elves and men, because of their love and reverence for Aule, and the gems of the Noldor they praised above all other wealth. Well, we just talked a little bit about that, actually, because Celebrimbor, of course, would have been a Noldor. Right. Um, but, yeah. The um, they're they're friends with um, uh, friends with uh, the Noldor because of, of Ally. But let me handle the rest of the paragraph. Sorry, I should have, I got distracted there. Yeah. So in the darkness of Arda already, the dwarves wrought great works. For even from the first days of their fathers, they had marvelous skill with metals and with stone. But in that ancient time, iron and copper they loved to work, rather than silver or gold. Very practical critters, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, we we talked about this a little bit uh, a couple of episodes ago, I think, mm-hmm. uh, with Morgoth's Iron Crown. Yeah, just I think last um, episode, I think. Yeah, uh, maybe so. Maybe the other one. You're right. Maybe the one remember. before that. Um, but we just talked about how iron is, you know, a utilitarian metal, practical, yes. not beautiful. Now, I'm not trying to draw a comparison between the dwarves and Morgoth here, no. but but certainly between the dwarves and practicality. You know, they're yeah. they're not fancy. They're not uh, they're no. not ornamental. They're, they're, no, silver or gold, clearly decorative metals. You're not going to mm-hmm. make a – they're far too soft to use in weapons or armor. Yep. Um, well, so is copper for that matter, but copper's, uh, you know, plentiful and you can use it for, you know, cooking and, and things along those lines, not to mention electricity, which they – I'm sure the dwarves had already invented by now. Oh, for sure, uh, yeah. <laughs> sure, sure they're, they're probably electroplating all that uh, – all their, all their mail. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so it's you know they're they're looking at, at practical uses of metal mm-hmm. at this point, yeah, certainly uh, in stone, and that's uh, the dwarves all over. They're just like you said, they're a, a practical people, tough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Well, then we get to the construction of Menegroth, don't we? Well, there are a couple other things I think we wanted to mention about, well, at least one other thing we wanted to mention about uh, this passage is, or about something we didn't read, but it was earlier about the, um, uh, they could understand no word of the tongue of the Nalgrim, which to their oh, right. ears was, was cumbrous and unlovely. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I thought I, that was interesting that they, you know, the dwarves were quick to learn uh, mm-hmm. and they were willing to learn uh, the, the elven tongue, but they weren't so willing to teach their own. Um, no. And that was okay with the elves because they didn't want to. It was ugly. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. Really. Well, you know what's cool about that is, uh, one, you know, the one book that I know both of us have read recently is uh, the new edition of A Secret Vice. Yes. That was edited by uh, Dimitri Fimi and uh, Andrew Higgins. Yes. Um, and one of the the like the new things that they unearthed um, in publishing that volume was uh, Tolkien's uh, essay on phonetic symbolism, which mm-hmm. uh, has ton of cool stuff in it but one of the things that's mentioned in that essay is this idea of phonetic predilection uh and it's basically the idea (laughs) phonetic predilection it's basically uh, a a predilection for certain kinds of phonetic sounds uh and it's basically the idea that uh certain people uh whether it's individuals or groups races and so forth have a preference for certain kinds of sounds and the phonology of a language is like inextricably tied to the people who speak it. Um, so, you know, there's a reason that English sounds okay. like English because people who natively speak English just have a predilection for English sounding sounds, Fascinating. Um, you know, and the same with, uh, any other Germanic language or, uh, you know, Japanese, the, the, the people of Japan, you know, they just have a predilection for certain kinds of sounds just because of where they live. Um, hmm. It's an interesting theory. Um, I don't think it's a theory that Tolkien totally, uh, you know, applied his entire life. But uh, it's really interesting here because uh, I think that's sort of at play here because, you know, you, you get the idea that be. the elves are a beautiful, elegant people and they speak a beautiful, elegant language. True. And the dwarves are kind of cumbrous and unwieldy, unlovely people, um, and, uh, and their language is similar. And so the elves hmm. just, the elves just can't get their mouths around this, this language of the dwarves. This language that's filled with consonants and really hard <laughs> sounds. And yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Hard sounds like Chazad, you know, chazad. Like that. that's true because we got to remember it's not Chazad, it's Chazad. It's that, right. that back of your throat, uh, almost like a German CH, mm-hmm. um, I forget what they call that. But there, yeah. There's a there's a word for that kind of consonant, and I'm yeah. not gonna guess because I'm gonna can't remember. make myself sound silly. But yeah, somebody knows it. I'm um, sure they do. <laughs> but uh, but it's just a really cool thing, and I think just because I recently read that, I uh, I, I was thinking of that. But uh, that is interesting. Yeah, I've been reading that that uh, that edition of a Secret Vice, and it is it is challenging to get through, not being as much of a word nerd as you are, but it's uh, definitely worth the read. Yeah, it really is. I highly recommend it to anybody out there. Uh, if you're in the U.S., you might have to get a U.K. Uh, edition because I, I don't I think, think it's available it's, here, isn't it? Is it available here now? I got mine if, from the if, U.K. Yeah, I ordered mine from the U.K. because I wanted to first, you know, I wanted to get it when it first came out. I wanted yeah, it first edition, but I'm fairly sure it is available. Maybe it's out in the U.S. now. Uh, we'll find out, and we'll put it in our. We'll put a link in our library for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one cool. way or the other. So it may be a UK link, but, you know, if you're here in the U.S., you can get that. You just have to pay a little bit more for shipping. Yeah, there you go. So anyway, very interesting. Um, You were talking about the fact that they're ready to adapt 
other languages the dwarves are, but not to teach mm-hmm. their own. You, you talked about that in terms of culture, I think, right? Yeah, uh, because, well, you know, every detail about language is significant in sure. Tolkien's work. And so by saying that the dwarves are ready to adapt uh, or adopt, I guess I should say, uh, mm-hmm. the language of the elves rather than teach their own language to the elves, um, that's really a way of saying that they're protective of their own culture. You know, oh, they don't okay. want to share their language okay. and culture with the elves. They they would rather assimilate to the culture of the people, you know, around them, um, which is just a very interesting thing. Um, you know, this this idea of a sort of a wandering protective people, um, it's reminiscent of some cultures in our own world. I, the, the word that pops into my mind is they, they seem kind of like a culture in diaspora, you mm-hmm. know, um, kind of like – Kind of like maybe even the, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know if Tolkien had really based them on um, either the Jews or the Romani or anything like that. But there's definitely some of those that you see pop up throughout medieval literature that, uh, yeah. that the dwarves are sort of reminiscent of. Oh, definitely. Well, and you know what? They are actually. I was thinking about that. Um, that I was reading recently. It was um, an interview. I was I was reading something about uh, the fact that Tolkien based the dwarves at least in part on uh, the Jewish culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a in an interview with the BBC, he said that he didn't intend it. So it, was, it clearly wasn't something that he, you know, chose to do at the beginning. He said, but when you've got these people on your hands, you've got to make them different, haven't you? And this is, I'm quoting Tolkien here. The dwarves, of course, are quite obviously, wouldn't you say that in many ways they remind you of the Jews? Their words are Semitic, obviously, constructed to be Semitic. The hobbits mm-hmm. are just rustic English people. Uh, so he he even recognized that there was some, some tie in there. And then... Um, okay. Uh, John Ratliff, the uh, author of The History of the Hobbit, in, in that volume talked about how Tolkien drew inspiration uh, from Hebrew texts and Jewish history in developing the dwarves. But that makes sense, especially okay. if you think about it from the, from the perspective of the Hobbit. Maybe not so much here, but um, I mean, once he created the dwarves, the dwarves were created. Um, but Thorin's people specifically, you know, they remember their past with these, their tragic past with mournful songs. Mm-hmm. They are craftsmen exiled from a, a, a wonderful homeland. They have no home. Right. Uh, and keep in mind that when Tolkien wrote uh, The Hobbit, uh, the Jews didn't have a home. Israel did not exist as a state. That's uh, true. Yeah. And that's, that's that, yeah. So they were definitely this kind of, like you said, um, dias- um, diaspora, um, you know, the a people kind of spread out in, in mm-hmm. various cultures. So they'd assimilated into different cultures, but all had their, their common language and their common culture. Uh, that they kind of kept to themselves in in some respects. Yeah, um, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah I, it, it is certainly, fascinating. It certainly is. Uh, there's certainly elements of that. I mean, you yeah. know, obviously we're not saying that. You no, know, there's the, certainly not an allegory. The or dwarves anything like are that. not the Jews. The Jews right, are not the exactly. dwarves. This isn't a one to one allegory. Exactly. But, but you know, Tolkien, a lot of influences went into the soup. Well, and, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and certainly there are some real world historical influences. And I think that, he wanted to make them see. good. Because yes. there's, a, there's, a, there's two things that go into this. Of course, one is his Christian background and Christianity is often viewed um, in recent history. I mean, obviously, if you go back to, you know, middle medieval ages, uh, medieval times, uh, Christianity. There was a lot of anti-Semitism. There was anti-Semitism, yeah, certainly. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in more modern times, Christianity is viewed as an, as an ally of Judaism <laughs> um, right. for, for obvious theological reasons. Um, but... Uh, there's that. There's the fact that he would have viewed himself as being kind of on the same side. But there's also the fact that he really despised Wagner and he mm-hmm. despised Hitler <laughs> big right. time. And he and, and Wagner, I, I mentioned Wagner because in his rings uh, or in his ring, um, 
the the dwarf was this stereotypical representation of a Jew, and he was a bad guy. Right. Uh, and I think you know Tolkien wanted to have the you know heroic dwarves that represented uh, this this kind of idea of, uh, of, yeah. of the Jews. Yeah, I think um, you're right. You know, he definitely wanted to rescue that because I loved there was, and I can't, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he at one point was answering something from Germany, uh, and he talked about how I guess they they inquired about a German translation, and I I think they made it sound like you know we want to make sure you don't have any Jewish background and uh, oh wow and yeah I I really wish I could pull this oh quote up. I do remember and that he letter, said basically. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't have any of those esteemed, you know, I, I don't have any but of that, it's that like esteemed I don't, race but I in my background. I did, cause, I, yeah. Because they're wonderful Because they're yeah. wonderful and you guys yeah. are horrible for, you know. Right. It was clear he was that. getting a dig in. Um, yeah. Know, he he absolutely despised uh, that anti-Semitism. So, you yep. know, if uh, if they are, if the dwarves are based, or to the extent that the dwarves are based on uh, on the Jews, it's not meant to be a negative thing at all. Right. Um but uh, yeah, even the, it is. It's interesting, it. and I remember reading someplace else. This is interesting. Again, really reach. I would never say that this is the case, but it was interesting to see somebody talk about that the Ark and Stone represented the Ark of the Covenant, and that the Lonely Mountain represents Temple Mount. <laughs> oh wow, uh, that probably is a stretch too far, but it's an interesting That's thought. Probably getting it? a little too allegorical, just but, a little yeah. bit. But anyway, yeah. it certainly shows that uh, there are folks who certainly There's see certainly that some connection. similarities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly feels right. So, definitely. Cool. Well, well, I think uh, that's probably going to bring us to uh, to Menegroth, isn't it? I think so. Um, I'm trying to take a look here. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's see. So, I think I'm going to have you read the paragraph that starts out with "Now Melian had much foresight." Okay. Now Melian had much foresight, after the manner of the Maiar. And when the second age of the captivity of Melkor had passed, she counseled Thingol that the peace of Arda would not last forever. He took thought, therefore, how he should make for himself a kingly dwelling and a place that should be strong if evil were to awake again in Middle-earth. And he sought aid and counsel of the dwarves of Belagost. They gave it willingly, for they were unwearied in those days and eager for new works. And though the dwarves ever demanded a price for all that they did, whether with delight or with toil. At this time they held themselves paid. For Melian taught them much that they were eager to learn, and Thingol rewarded them with many fair pearls. These Círdan gave to him, for they were got in great number in the shallow waters about the Isle of Balar. But the Nalgrim had not before seen their like, and they held them dear. One there was as great as a dove's egg, and its sheen was as starlight on the foam of the sea. Nymphalos it was named, and the chieftain of the dwarves of Belagost prized it above a mountain of wealth. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think we actually hear of Nymphalos again. I, I looked I don't, in the uh, – in, I searched my electronic copy, and I, it only shows up in the index. So, I don't think we do hear about it again, and I would – just throw out there that I don't think it's the Arkenstone. <laughs> we have just to say that about every like every single roughly stone hand-sized that's gem that's... to the dwarves. <laughs> uh, again, no, no. Uh, you know the Arkenstone is faceted, and I you don't can't think facet you, a pearl. I don't think you can no, facet a pearl. You cannot facet a pearl. Uh, my goodness, that <laughs> I never even thought yeah. about uh, Nymphalos being the uh, Arkenstone, but I guess <laughs> I don't know. I just I, I feel like I got to get it out there. Just you do. We keep on. Yeah, people always want to think something. Well, that maybe that's the Arkenstone. Right, right. 
So where are we on the timeline here, since you've oh, got the timeline handy? Well, we are, oh, we're probably pushing uh, around 50 minutes. Oh, oh, that timeline. <laughs> <laughs> the timeline in Middle Earth. Sorry. Of course. We are almost a thousand years after the end of the first age. We're, we're now after the second age, right? So this is yeah. when the second age of the captivity of Melkor. So this is a thousand years after the end of the first age. Okay. So Luthien's a thousand years old, and they're wondering when she's going to get out. She's like the... The worst millennial in the world. She's a thousand years old and still hasn't left home. Move out of the basement. Get out of the house. Go live on your own. No. Actually, they're I'm about to totally make the whole house kidding. the basement. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Um, I also thought it was interesting. Thingol sought the Council of the Dwarves, and he accepted mm-hmm. the Council of Melian. Fan or take note. <laughs> hey, how about council, some council? Council's a good while. thing. Tolkas, so you might want to stay out of the conversation <laughs> since you're no good at council. <laughs> yeah. Take some counsel with someone besides yourself, and maybe you'll and, and, kill and your everybody. sons who are just your seven yes men. Yeah. Um, anyway, I just thought that was interesting. I also thought it was really cool to see that the dwarves, who are known for being, at least you know, in our in in most of the book, uh, most of the works, are known for being rather demanding in terms of gold. Mm-hmm. They gave their counsel willingly. They gave mm-hmm. their aid willingly, and they considered themselves paid. Yeah. Now, yeah, okay, Thingol rewarded them with pearls, so they did have some material stuff, but I thought this was interesting, and I just wish I could be a fly on the wall. Melian taught them much taught that they were much. eager to learn. What I know. Could, what could what Melian have taught was? dwarves? I know. I wonder. It, it, how it's... to braid a, a lady's beard? I How did – what should – Well, <laughs> obviously, yes, that, because, you I know. I don't know. I mean, what could Melian have possibly taught the dwarves that they would have found now... useful? I now have an image in my head that Melian looks like the dwarven image of female beauty. <laughs> she's got this flowing beard. Oh, no. And she's a Maya. She's a she, Maya. She's she a, can put herself in whatever raiment she wants. She's oh, got that's a, a good point. So she pardons herself from, from Thingol's presence and says, excuse me, while I put on yeah. my beard. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, no, exactly. no. I, it, but I do wonder, what could she have taught them? You I know. Wonder. Or were, were the dwarves possibly interested in anything regarding the history of uh, of Valinor? Could be, I, maybe, maybe did she might maybe have been able she, to teach them stuff about Aule? Yeah, I was just thinking that maybe she taught yeah. them a little bit about Aule. Maybe yeah. they learned a little bit that about their maker sense. that way. That would be cool. What yeah. else could I mean? Really, what would Melian have known that the dwarves would find useful? I love that. I love. Let's that. see. Melian had uh, in in Amman. She had hung out in. Uh, in Estes and, and Lorien's gardens, right? Right, right. So that's not really dwarvish in no. compassion and and all of that. I, anyway, I just find that fascinating, and I it really is. wish I knew what it was that she taught them. I know. It's anyway. fascinating stuff. Um, and then going back to the map, let's go take a look at the uh, Loader Project map. So we've got Doriath there in the middle. Um, we find out that the pearls were, were gotten in great number in the shallow waters about the Isle of Balar. That is all the way to the southwest in the map. So if you look to the immediate west of Doriath, you see uh, River Syrian running through, splitting the forest of Brethel and Neldoreth. Then mm-hmm. it goes through the mountain range, uh, comes out, and goes all the way down to the mouths of Syrian into the Bay of Balar. And there, to the southwest of the, of the bay, is the Isle of Balar. Okay, now, so we so we know the Falathrum were we're sailing at least to the quite island. Quite a ways because the yeah. Falas is is way up the to north. the northwest there. Way up to the northwest, probably a good three four hundred miles uh, based on mm-hmm. what we know later in terms of, of oh yeah, um, good point yeah uh, Thangora yeah. being. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. Remember the Isle of Balar showed up earlier. That's the last, that's the piece of the island that broke off. Right. And Ulmo carried the elves over to, um, uh, to, uh, to Amon. To Amon on Toleresia. So that's like the, that's like a little piece of Toleresia that, yeah. uh, that yeah, got that, left in the, the bay. The, yeah. the root of the island uh, stayed yep. there. So, yeah. you know, really that, that's where the, the, the pearls came from. I uh, yeah. just thought that was interesting. And then also the description of Menegroth itself in terms of its uh, location. We're going to read this. Um, let's start with just like one sentence into the next paragraph. So, uh, and I'll, I'll stop as I'm reading to kind of point things out. So where the Escalduin flowed down and parted Neldoreth from Region. So that, you'd have to zoom in on the map. But it's such a great map. You can zoom in so easily. So the Escalduin is the river that runs... At least in Doriath, it runs east-west, but it comes from the north. So it go, it comes north-south. It comes Medigoth, down from like the, the Arid Gorgoroth. The Arid Gorgoroth. comes comes down into the forest and then uh, makes that, that I guess, right-hand turn as, it, as it's coming. It makes mm-hmm, a turn mm-hmm. to the west uh, at Menegroth and goes to, um, uh, to the, to the to Syria. To Syria. Yeah. So where the Escaldwin flowed down and parted Neldoreth from Region. So now you've got two forests. You've got... The forest of Region, which is to the south and east, and the mm-hmm. forest of Neldrath, which is in the northwest there. So where that river happened, uh, there rose in the midst of the forest a rocky hill, and the river ran at its feet. There they made the gates of the hall of Thingol, and they built a bridge of stone over the river, by which alone the gates could be entered. Beyond the gates, wide passages ran down to high halls and chambers far below that were hewn in the living stone so many and so great that the dwelling was named Menegroth, the Thousand Caves. But the elves also had part in that labor, and elves and dwarves together, each with their own skill, there wrought out the visions of Melian, images of the wonder and beauty of Valinor beyond the sea. The pillars of Menegroth were hewn in the likeness of the beeches of Oromé, stock, bow, and leaf, and they were lit with lanterns of gold. I'm sorry, stock, bow, and leaf. I can't read tonight. <laughs> and they were lit with lanterns of gold. The nightingales, keep in mind, that's what um, Luthien Tenuviel, you know, we, we, we know that nightingales are associated with, uh, I'm sorry, with her mom, with Melian. Mm-hmm. So the nightingales sang there as in the gardens of Lorien, and there were fountains of silver and basins of marble and floors of many-colored stone. Carven figures of beasts and birds there ran upon the walls or climbed upon the pillars or peered among the branches entwined with many flowers. And as the years passed, Melian and her maidens filled the halls with woven hangings, wherein could be read the deeds of the Valar, and many things that had befallen in Arda since its beginning, and shadows of things that were yet to be. That was the fairest dwelling of any king that has ever been east of the sea. Wow. What a place. It certainly sounds like the fairest dwelling. Posters I mean, on the wall that predict the future. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's amazing. No, truly just beautiful. I mean, it really the idea is. of these, just the the, the the pillars hewn to look like trees. Um, it, it really stunning. is like a mini Valinor, like just the the, the Yeah, an the underground of Valinor. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> nightingales, silver fountains, marble basins. Oh yeah, uh, so Amazing. much detail, and I love that the entire history of the Valar w- was there. Mm-hmm. And I love that this is actually defined the fairest dwelling of any king that has ever been east of the sea. Yeah, 
There's no, this is fairer this is than better. A, that's fairer yeah. than Gondolin. Yeah. Uh, fairer yeah. than anything, you know, to come Margifrond, later. Uh, right. Rivendell. Right. Um, you know, uh, Lothlorien. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Certainly fairer than, you know, any of the, the Manish uh, kingdoms, Minas Tirith or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Any of the capitals. <laughs> wow. It's just beautiful. I and, can't even imagine. And unsurprisingly, it was made by harmony between races, wasn't That's it? That's exactly the point. Elves mm-hmm. and dwarves together. Well, and even an uh, And, and a, with a the force at a million. So, yeah, it's a harmony between elf and dwarf and Maya. Which really never happened again. Um, True. But, wow. Yeah, absolutely. Once again, teamwork. Teamwork does it. Um, generosity. Seeking go the counsel. It is. This is all go team. Mm-hmm. Uh, great stuff. But it doesn't last. I mean, it does last, but we, we find some disturbing news uh, shortly thereafter, don't we? Yes. Yes, we do. So um, we'll start with a timeline check, won't we? This is now yeah. um, going just past this. Um, well, first we get that little bit just to remind us that the dwarves went seldom to the Phallus for they hated the sound of the sea. Yes. You know, did, we I think, kind of touched on this, didn't we? Is this uh, the fact that because they loved Aule and not Omo? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a one of those long-term effects of Aule hiding his work of making mm, the dwarves from the other Valar that they only— point. They only love his domain. They only love stone. Yeah. Um, so they don't love Olmo's domain. They, you know, we they don't love Yavanna's domain. We know they don't much. love Yavanna's domain. Um, yeah, I think that's that's what this has. Uh, that's a good point. Has a lot to do with the consequences of Ally's action. You're mm-hmm. right. It's an excellent point. So they, you know, it wasn't that they didn't go to the Phallus because it was just too far out of the way. They no. didn't go there because they hated the sound of the no sea. No interest in going to the it. sea. Yep. So they liked water about as much as Sam did. I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, let's see. So we get uh, the arrival of the next paragraph tells us that the third age of the captivity of Melkor drew on. Mm-hmm. So now we're getting, you know, up to, you know, 40, uh, not quite to 4,900. So Luthien's okay. getting really old to be living at home. But, uh, <laughs> you know, she's still there. Still on her parents' insurance and everything. <laughs> if you, if you, I'm not going anywhere with that. I'm just going to leave that alone. Um <laughs> The dwarves tell them that there are fell beasts in the land east of the mountains, and your ancient kindred that dwell there are flying from the plains to the hills. Yeah. Uh, by the way, flying here is, is metaphorical. It means they're running. I just want right. to point that out, that not every time wings or flying are mentioned does it actually mean things have wings or are flying. Balrogs. <clears throat> yeah, something like that. Anyway, <laughs> read Tom's essay. You'll get you'll get it. You'll understand, yes, and you'll, you'll finally totally get it. I think you'll finally agree. Um, I think it's I think it's interesting that it's the you know the dwarves who uh, who yeah. hear about this uh, you know because of course the dwarves are, are to the east. Well, and they're they're traders. They clearly oh, that's work, a good point. You know they're 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 connected. You know that's uh, they're the 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 grease of this economy. Um, so I'm sure that probably had something to do with it. And they they the, they were the able grease? to get that message. The grease. The you know like, like the, amongst the wheels. Okay, I, I wasn't sure if economy. you meant like the lubricant or like the the ancient culture. Like, oh well, yeah, I guess it could have been that too. I was thinking <laughs> I of the know. I was I thinking of that. the lubricant, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's gotten to the point where I have to spell now. I have to yeah. spell my words yeah. just to make sure you get context. Um, right, exactly. Yeah, Greece, as in Greece is the word. The word. Oh uh, man, that's awesome! I love that. <laughs> well done. Well done. 
Oh man, that yeah, it's late. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, fell beasts. Now these are not the same fell beasts that we see later on. It just it's a fell beast. It's a beast. that's a, a cruel beast, right? Right. Fell, fell as in cruel or terrible, as in like one fell swoop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. a generic adjective. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad. I'm glad you brought that up because um, you know anybody who's familiar with the familiar with the movies might know that they they actually sold action figures of the of the the Nazgul steeds under the yeah, name Fell, Fell Beast. Beast, and it kind of makes you get probably gives because the, nobody at the company could spell Dwimmer Lake. <laughs> could be. <laughs> could be. Foul Dwimmer Lake just didn't Foul pass Dwimmer the Lake. focus groups. No. Fell Beast did. Fell Beast worked. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, it's worth pointing out that Tolkien, that's not that isn't a fell beast capital F capital B. Tolkien no. uses this term fell beasts a lot of times throughout the Legendarium. Um, he uses it actually of werewolves later on. That's true in uh, Baron and Luthien. In, uh, Baron and Luthien, yeah. That's a good point. So uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because okay. it's it's one of my one of my little pet peeves is referring to the Nazgul states. <laughs> oh, the fell beasts. Well, and, you know, when we talk about fell beasts being werewolves, I just want to kind of leave a little hint that, you know, we'd, we'd see on this. It says wolves there were uh, or or creatures that walked in wolf shape. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk more about that later. I'm just going to kind of leave that there um, because we're going to get to a point where we're talking about a very mighty werewolf and also a very mighty wolf. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah Sauron and Karkaroth. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that story is later. And I think at that point we'll start talking about. What's the difference between a wolf and a warg and a werewolf? And, you know, which ones have, you know, like Maiar-like spirits and what, you know. Oh, that's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting conversation to be had. I, I think there was a, a thread on that in one of the groups I was in, I don't know, about a year ago. And it just was, went on and on and on. It was a really fun one. That's cool. As opposed to all the threads yeah. that constantly talk about the Silmarillion movies. Making, <laughs> making the I Silmarillion just Silmarillion. want to stop. I want them all to stop. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. I know. I know. It's like it's like one new one every three every days. Every other day. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I just, I hope they make a movie of that. Are you climbing out from the cave you've been in? Because everybody's been posting this over and over again anyway. Like we said, they shouldn't, but I'd still be the first to line up. Um, oh, oh, totally. Yeah, no, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll talk smack about it all, oh, day, yeah. all day long. All, I'll, stand the whole in the, time. I'll, I'll stand in the movie line for eight Group hours saying production they shouldn't and do this. I yep. shouldn't be watching this movie. It's going to be horrible. They can't do it justice. And <laughs> then I'd be, be the terrible, first one to watch I will it. be there on, at a midnight screening on Darn opening right. night. Absolutely. Just to hear Morgan Freeman come out as a Louvatar. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> So I guess that's better than like Mike Myers. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just imagine Morgan Freeman coming no, out. No, I don't want to imagine any voice. I don't. I will now that you, <laughs> you make before me a great music. Oh, man. <laughs> All right, let's go back to the text. I will now that you make a great music. Oh, my God, you did the Ungoliant voice. You asked me to pull it when you thank didn't expect you, it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, you you made my day. Thank you, Alan. You are welcome. Let's just hope you're not the only one whose day I made. Oh, that was good stuff. Um, Starring Ungoliant as Eru <laughs> in, her, in her understudy in role. In a surprise casting choice. <laughs> uh, you know, I only resorted to that because I just can't do Morgan Freeman. 
Oh, there you go. Well, yeah. And the voices I can do, I mean, I couldn't think of any others that would work. I mean, you know, Mr. Burns as Iluvatar. I will now that you make a great music. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. It's an excellent music. Release the hounds. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Anyway, this is going to go really far far afield. Yes, yes. Let's go back to the Silmarillion. You've got a note here that I just want you to explain. The compass points of doom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The compass points of doom. Um, just an interesting little tidbit. Uh, we hear about the, the where is this, that the, uh, you know, the problems coming in from the east. Right. Well, um, first, they hadn't uh, rooted out utterly the evils of the north. And oh, the, right, and right, the right. land east of the mountains are the fell beasts. Thank you for finding it. Yeah. I've still got Morgan Freeman in my mind. Um, yeah. Get out, uh, Morgan. Get out. You don't belong there. <laughs> uh, just, a, just a neat little thing. In Tolkien's work, uh, east is always bad and north mm-hmm. is almost always bad. Interesting. Uh, You're right. Well, uh, and even in Lord of the Rings, even south becomes kind of bad, doesn't it? It's pretty oh, much that's just true. Yeah, when, you get the Har- when you get the Haradrim and everything coming yeah. from the south, that's true. Yeah, um, that's a good point. But I always think of uh, it's the uh, the funeral dirge that Aragorn oh, and Legolas sing for Boromir. One of my favorite musical yeah. moments. Oh, in, it's, it's a, oh. It is. It is a great moment. In, uh, it's Two Towers, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, yes, yes. Oh, and they uh, they sing a verse about the north wind. They sing a verse about the south wind. They sing a verse about the west wind. And then I think it's Gimli who says, "Well, you left the east wind to me, but I, I uh, don't have the heart to the sing." O- yeah, speak not of the east wind. Right, Aragorn says, "Like, no, we don't want to speak about the east wind." Yeah, nothing good ever comes from the east. East is always no. the direction of uh, of, of sort of uh, darkness, I yeah. would say, and yeah. evil. Um, and is- you're right. By the third age, certainly north and south. Well. Here, north is, too, because they're yeah, so far yeah. north that there's nothing north of them except, you know, frozen yeah, waste. Yeah, exactly. And, just the frontier. That's true. Right. But then yeah, later on, we it's, don't get north. Once we're further south in the story, like, say, Gondor, the north isn't a bad thing anymore. Now it's right. the south. Right. Um, interesting. Very interesting. But certainly the east is always bad. You're right. Yeah. Uh, and depending on where you are, north is bad or, or south is bad. Yeah. And west is always good. West, west always is always good. the direction of... Of, uh, of enlightenment. Well, I mean, yeah. obviously, there's Amon's there. That's you know? where Amon is. That's where Tol Arasea yeah. is. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, well, let's see. I, you know, I took a little bit of that line there about the wolves, but I wanted you to read that paragraph because there's a couple things in there I wanted to, to talk about. Uh, and air long the evil creatures, that one. I think you Okay, that is that one right. mine? Yeah. I think so. Okay. And ere long the evil creatures came even to Beleriand, over passes in the mountains, or up from the south through the dark forests. Wolves there were, or creatures that walked in wolf shapes, and other fell beings of shadow. And among them were the orcs, who afterwards wrought ruin in Beleriand. But they were yet few and wary, and did but smell out the ways of the land, awaiting the return of their lord. Whence they came, or what they were, the elves knew not then, thinking them perhaps to be Avari, who had become evil and savage in the wild. In which they guessed all too near, it is said. Yeah, that. That's what I wanted to get to. Boy, that, you know, what we learned about with the Avari being captured uh, way back, uh, you know, when they were first, uh, when they first awoke uh, by Lake Kuivienen. And the hunter would come, you know, and get them. And that's why they were afraid of Orome, because they thought it was him. And and we know, we know that uh, in one of the most horrible things that, that Melkor could have done, uh, he took them and twisted them into the into the orcs. To the orcs, yeah. Just one of the most evil things that's that's been done uh, in the entire 
in the entire yeah. story so far. It's interesting to think that they could actually just guess it. They could sense it. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I probably you could you could sense that this is a a twisted, you know, uh, bred, you know, creature bred from something like you. You you would feel that um, that, that similarity. Revulsion. Yeah. That, that similarity, but also that revulsion. Yeah. Ooh. <clears throat> it's chilling. Sort of like the Reavers. Oh, uh, Firefly. Yeah, from Firefly. Yeah. So I had to yeah, get all those right. all those cool references in. Yeah, <laughs> you're always there with the quick with the good references. I love that. Man, boy, the, well, those the Firefly was like one of my favorite shows ever. Oh, so. it was an awesome show. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I realized who, who actually, doesn't love that show? Seriously, if you've not I'm watched, sure, that, we're, we're going to get mail from somebody who doesn't love it. But come on, that's okay. Loves it. Yeah, it really. I mean, how do you? It's yeah, there's only 14 episodes. You can watch them all in like a weekend. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. You should be able to watch an entire. The, the, all of the entire, the entire story series. one weekend and the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I realize now that I actually, I think I had us reading opposite passages, but that's, I'll just take the next one that I had marked as yours, but I okay, really like that. That passage needed to be read. Um, that was really chilling. The whole idea that they were able to kind of, like you said, recognize and be revulsed mm-hmm. by that, uh, that similarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, we want to talk a little bit about, you know, what happens next. So, so Thingol, uh, decides he needs to get himself some, uh, some weapons. Some weapons. Yeah. Uh, so he talks, uh, to the Nalgrim and they, they make him some, and why are they good at that? Well, um, mm-hmm. a warlike race of old were all the Nalgrim and they would fight fiercely against whomsoever aggrieved them. And they're looking for a fight anywhere they can find one. <laughs> Servants of Melkor or Eldar or Avari or wild beasts or not seldom their own kin, dwarves of other mansions and lordships. Their smithcraft, indeed, the Sindar soon learned of them. Yet, in the tempering of steel alone, of all crafts, the dwarves were never outmatched even by the Noldor. And wow. in the making of mail of linked rings, which was first contrived by the smiths of Belagost, their work had no rival. Wow. So Even yeah, the Noldor. Even never the Noldor. Weren't the, the, the steel smiths that they were. That's amazing. It really is. Um, and But I noticed you, you pointed out something else, too. Right before that, I saw something about Telkar. I... Telkar the Smith, yeah. I'd forget anybody, about this. Do you remember uh, anybody remember this name? It's it's actually mentioned in Lord of the Rings. There's a passage. Uh, this is uh, Book Three, Chapter Six, I believe. Aragorn says, "In this elvish sheath dwells the blade that was broken and has been made again. Telkar first wrought it in the deeps of time. Death shall come to any man that draws Elendil's sword, save Elendil's heir." That's so cool. So that's obviously you know Narsil and Duril. Right. Uh, was wrought by Telkar. Yeah. Wow. So it's it is Aragorn's sword is made, this old. It was made now. Yeah, it pretty much would have to have been because yeah. the dwarves are not immortal. I mean, well, but they can right. live several hundred years. So Telkar it, could. It, it could have been. Yeah, sure. But certainly wait, in this. Actually, I just realized looking at the text, that doesn't necessarily follow. Listen to this. It's It, it just says that um, none among them surpassed the craftsmen of Nagrod, of whom Telkar the smith was greatest in renown. So that could have come down. In other words, it's you don't know any of the uh, Nagrod. Oh, you you know about the Nagrod because Telkar was was one of them. That's a good point. Maybe he wasn't. We'll have to look that up and see if yeah. Telkar actually was in the first stage or later. That's but a it, good. But it would point. have had. Actually, I guess it would have had to have been before uh, the drowning of Beleriand. Certainly, um, because I don't. Well, think... no, because Nagrod I think is still around by the Third Age because the Ered Luin right. is still there. Yeah, because the east side of the Ered Luin is still. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Interesting. I don't know. I, 
We'll have to find a timeline on Telcar, but it, we'll have it, to look that up. I don't yeah. think the text is conclusive to say that uh, Telcar lived at that time. Um, yeah, but probably yeah. it's. I I, I got to think it was some point in the first age because yeah. Yeah. Again, remember that Aragorn has Sindarin heritage True. through Luthien. True, Luthien, yeah. Um, and it, it seems unlikely that uh, Numenorians would have gotten a hold of a blade from Telkar through another means. That's true. I think you're probably so right. So probably sometime in the first age, but maybe not just yet. Yeah. Well, it won't be much later that they'd be, I mean, <laughs> uh, there's going to come a time where the dwarves aren't going to be crafting anything for the descendants of Luthien. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> so right. you're right. Exactly. It, so it's it has to come up sometime that. soon or it wouldn't happen at all. You're right. Um, interesting. We'll have to kind of hash some of that out. Yeah. Well, now, why do we bring all this up? Um, you know, I think it's it's interesting. We, we look at the struggles of the Sindar. These are very real. They're very grounded, kind of down to earth um, <laughs> understandable struggles. These are struggles for survival. They're fighting oh, yeah. monsters, they're, they're fighting, fighting orcs, and... werewolves. The yeah. Noldor are fighting each other and the Teled. Yes. And yes. They're, they're, this isn't... They're, they're not... fighting for pride. The yeah, Noldor are that's exactly for, like, right. The Sindar yeah, are fighting, fighting for their like... lives. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting, and I, I know you did too, um, because it's this is of... all happening at the same time. Right. Uh, well, yeah. not not quite yet, because Melkor's still not unchanged. Oh, that's true. So Melkor's the Noldor, not unchanged yet. Yeah, the Noldor aren't quite at each other's necks yet. Yeah. Um, but they will be soon enough. Um, anyway, it's interesting. It's, it's um, very cool, yeah. Yeah. So let's see. So we get, um, well, we get the arrival of the Nandor. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read this paragraph. It looks like I've got um, uh, little is known. So a little, there's a, there's a break here. And then now, as has been told, uh, the next sentence to the end of the paragraph. Little is known of the wanderings of the Nandor, whom he led, he being uh, Lenway of the host of Olway, led away down Anduin. Some, it is said, dwelt age long in the woods of the Vale of the Great River. That would be Anduin. Some came at last to its mouths, and there dwelt by the sea. And yet others, passing by Arid Nimrice, the White Mountains, came north again, and entered the wilderness of Eriador between Arid Luin and the far mountains of mist. Now these were a woodland people, and had no weapons of steel. Maybe they were armed with slender bows. I don't know. <laughs> Probably. And the coming of the fell beasts of the north filled them with great fear, as the Nalgrim declared to King Thingol and Menegroth. <laughs> Therefore Denethor, the son of Linway, hearing rumor of the might of Thingol and his majesty, and of the peace of his realm, gathered such host of his scattered people as he could, and led them over the mountains into Beleriand. There they were welcomed by Thingol, as kin long lost at return, and they dwelt in Osirian, the land of seven rivers. So um, geography, a lot of this is actually off the map, but most of you can recall the Anduin from uh, Lord of the Rings, Lord yeah. of the Rings map. So the Vale of the Great River, they would have eventually gotten to its mouths. That would be uh, down by what Lasarnak uh, in South Gondor, right? Right. Um, and then eventually they. Um, passed by the White Mountains. Uh, those would be the ones that run east-west, um, north of Gondor, that separate Gondor and Rohan, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I don't know if they separate them. They run sort of along the, the path between them. Yeah, that's true. Because Edoras is uh, is on like a northern spur of the Arid yeah. Nimrais, and then uh, Mindaloan, which is where Minas Tirith is, is uh, what, the eastern edge. Yeah, but Gondor is to the south of the Arid Nimrais. 
Oh, that's a, well, that's north. a good point. Yeah, that's true. Minas Tirith is right there. But yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. Yeah, the mountains, I guess, would technically be a separation, wouldn't they? For the most part, but yeah. yeah. Um, so they would pass over those uh, and then come over into Eriador uh, between Ered Lewin and the Misty Mountains. So that would be, um, well, let's see, that would be in those wide lands like Eregion and um, Enidwaith and Dunland <laughs> and all that area. Right. So um, they were a woodland people, so they didn't have, you know, a lot of weapons. These weren't, uh, you know, city dwellers with, uh, you know, smiths and all of that. No, didn't um, forge weapons or anything like that. No, they were very, you know, hippie-like, living with the trees. Yeah. Um, and, and you're probably right. They probably would have used bows or something that they could yeah. have hunted with. Yeah. So they obviously were mismatched with the fell beasts. So they, oh, yes. they come over the mountains. So now we can look at our map. They came over the Arid Lewin um, and you know, would have spoken to Thingol, and he gave them the land of Osirian. That's in the far southeast of the map. Uh, it's where all those tributaries to the Gelian are that come out from the southern half of the, of the Arid Lewin. And that means the land of seven rivers, and you can clearly see the seven rivers right there on the map. There's the Gelian and then the six tributaries off to it. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, if you're looking for seven tributaries, you're not going to find them. Right, right. The seventh would be the Gelian. <laughs> um, so let's see. Um, Denethor. This is no relation? <laughs> <laughs> no, no relation. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, this Tolkien, is a very different guy. Un- unconveniently reusing names, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we get um, – well, he, get, he uses renames, human names a lot. People are – Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Many, many times and, the second yep. or the third um, example of these names. So yep, these indeed. were the Lyquendi. The Lyquendi, yep, the Green Elves. Yes. Uh, they're – let's see. So they're, where they fit in the scheme of elves, they were not of the Avari. They were of the Eldar. Right, but because they, they did. The, right. They started on the march. But they left a whole But they left early, early, early. Yeah. They, they left basically at the Anduin. That's, that's where they stopped. You're right. Yeah, before they got to the Misty Mountains, mm-hmm. uh, before they crossed the Anduin. So they ended the, the journey much, much earlier than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they, these are related to, um, to most of the peoples of Mirkwood and yep. Lothlorien. Yeah. So Mirkwood and Lothlorien, although they're ruled by Sindarin elves, uh, Thranduil and, and um, well, Celeborn, Celeborn and I guess. Galadriel, yeah. Because uh, Galadriel's Noldo, but right. Um, but yeah, but they're they're ruled by uh, I guess high elves. Um, but most of the people of Mirkwood and Lothlorien would have been Nandor. Um, yeah. But uh, the the green elves, the Lyquendi, are other Nandor who left their cousins probably in those places. True. Okay. Well, we've got that. And then mm-hmm. I wanted, you got a little bit of uh, word nerd good stuff coming up. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. Uh, why don't you read that passage first, then we can talk about it. Okay. So this is in the next paragraph, the second sentence. In those days, it is said, Dairon the minstrel, chief lore master of the kingdom of Thingol, devised his runes, and the Naugrim that came to Thingol learned them and were well pleased with the device, esteeming Dairon's skill higher than did the Sindar, his own people. By the Naugrim, the Kirth were taken east over the mountains and passed into the knowledge of many peoples. But they were little used by the Sindar for the keeping of records until the days of the war, and much that was held in memory perished in the ruins of Doriath. But of bliss and glad life there is little to be said before it ends, as works fair and wonderful, 
while still they endure for eyes to see, are their own record, and only when they are in peril or broken forever do they pass into song. Wow. Ooh. Just wow. Oh, yeah, that's a uh, that's a beautiful sentiment at Isn't the end. It? I I mainly wanted that passage for the Kirth stuff, which I'll yeah. get into, but I just but love that, that passage. That passage at the end. I mean, it's wow. It's I mean, it's so true. It is yeah. absolutely true. We I mean, even now, you know, I mean, here we are, um, you know, we've got young families, our kids are growing. We there's only when things are different, only when things are in peril do you start to look at at what is, you know, do yeah. you start to value your past and your history? Yeah. I don't take enough pictures. I don't take enough video. I don't write enough things down. And it's because, you know, well, it's because I'm busy, but it's because, you know, yeah. works, it's because we're in bliss and glad life. And so we just kind of don't think about that. You're stuff. just enjoying it and you don't think about, you know, stopping to Recording remember it. it for posterity. You're yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you can see the beauty still around you, so you don't really think about what to say. And then uh, they, they only get into song or, you know, history um, when they're in danger of, uh, of being destroyed or when they're actually destroyed. Yeah. And that's a yeah. sad thing. That's a, a real unfortunate thing. Yeah. But I don't, we can't really spend much time there other than just to say that. And I know you've got some stuff to say about the Kirth. Yeah, I just want to spend a little time on the Kirth just because... Um, they are one of the scripts that you see a lot in Lord of the Rings. Uh, if you've, if you remember the, uh, Balan's tomb, uh, from Moria, uh, that's got the runes on it. And that's, those are actually, uh, the Kirth. In fact, uh, Gandalf says in that part, these are the runes of Dairon, uh, or these are Dairon's runes, something like that. Um, so, so we get here that they were devised by Dairon. They were devised by a Sindarin elf, uh, which means that they're not related to, the scripts that we talked about in earlier chapters, which are um, the Serati of Rumil or the uh, the Tengwar of Feanor. Um, so they're developed completely independently. Right. Um, interestingly, they do have some features in common with the Tengwar, uh, one of which uh, I'm going to go really word nerd on you here um, and say they're, uh, they're featural scripts. So uh, mm-hmm. a featural script is one where the shape of the letter tells you something about how it's pronounced. Hmm. So... Uh, let's take, okay. yeah. let's take, for Very example, exciting. uh, let's, let's look at the Kirth, the Kirth, since we're talking about those. Uh, if you look at the, the Kirth for P, it kind of looks like a P. Um, it's, it looks like an angular P. It's just right. a, a straight line with a, you know, a little, uh, triangle off right. to the side of it. Um, if you add a stroke, then that changes the P sound into a B sound that's called adding voice right. in linguistics. Uh, or if you reverse the P that changes the P sound to an F sound, which is called uh, making it aspirant or a fricative. Um, and so it's just, it, that that's true of all, or, or most of the consonants. Tulka smash. <laughs> am, I, am I losing you a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> it's all in Appendix E, actually. Okay, wow. Um, but really, it's just the, the shape yeah. of the letter defines the sound, which is that's different. That's pretty cool. That's, it's that's... different from our... Different from our le- alphabet, where yeah. there's you know there's no, uh, no there's no relationship between you know the the shape of a uh, a shape of a P and the shape of an R you know they just kind of right. look similar but there's there's no common sound there none at all um, but the but Kirith actually the the way they look actually helps define how they sound and Tengwar are the same yeah so it's just neat because uh, 
they're just they're very logical scripts. Um, yeah. They're they're intentionally designed to be easy to read. Um, though you maybe have to decipher. Yeah, you're right. Maybe they're not always to, to some people. <laughs> but uh, but I, I found them easy to learn uh, yeah. when I when I learned them just because because they were so logical. That makes um, sense. And as a as a letter nerd, that's uh, that's kind of cool to me. That is very cool. Well, you know, I, I I find it interesting that the dwarves like them more than the elves did, and I'm almost thinking that's aesthetic. Uh, you know, that they, they don't, they just are very, um, well, they're all straight lines and, you know, it's not, it's not elvish. It's not, you know, it's beautiful. It's kind of like the dwarvish yeah. language. I mean, it's, um, but something you could carve into metal. Well, and know, that's the thing. Really and that's easily. why you can't carve or chisel into stone. Chisel into stone. You, yeah. You couldn't chisel, the, you know, the tengwar into stone. Yeah. These round, these beautiful rounded bows. You, well, I mean, I like guess that. you could, but it would take for, it would take a very long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> What have you been doing the last three years? Well, I'm writing a letter and I'm at hello. <laughs> Dwarves don't have time for that. They got no. They got people to fight, weapons to make, and yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, I just thought that was interesting. That it does seem to be some sort of a, an aesthetic reason why the elves really don't prefer it, but the dwarves certainly do. Yeah. So I was wondering. I it made me think of the um, the runes on the map in the Hobbit, but I don't mm. think those are Kirith, are they? No, they are not actually. Okay, uh, I wasn't sure because I remember trying to take the appendix and, and translate it, them, and it didn't work. It was like yeah. saying about by Ovaltine or something. <laughs> uh. <laughs> nope. Yep. That's wow. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you get you got some some interesting secret messages there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> those are more. not the cure. Um, no. Actually, no. interesting question. Those are. Um, those are based on actual Anglo-Saxon runes, which are oh, called okay. the Futhork. The Futhork, uh, okay. Futhork, yeah, which is the just the names of the the first six letters, um, or it's just yeah, you know, it's like an acronym from the first six letters oh, okay. um, of the alphabet. Uh, I think the reason Tolkien used uh, the Anglo-Saxon runes mm-hmm. for Thror's map is probably well, probably first of all because he he wasn't quite sure the Hobbit was True. going to fit into his into his legendarium just yet. No. Um, but also, um, you know, remember we talked about the dwarves uh, not sharing their language with others, um, and, uh. Uh, and and the fact that Thror's people were uh, were in diaspora, um, and so, you know, their language that they use, they you know they use the Westron language. Their names were all right. in the Westron language, and so right. uh, Tolkien which is always Manish language, right? Which is the Manish language, the the language that was spoken by people around them. Um, and Tolkien always rendered Westron as English, so I mm-hmm. think that's why he used actual English runes for that. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Well, there's actually a whole appendix on runes in uh, I think it's in Volume Seven of History of Middle Earth. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, yeah, if anybody's Treason of Isengard. Got, yeah, yeah. There's a there's an appendix on runes, and it's got okay. some of Tolkien's drawings of different runes. But uh, anyway. Probably nobody's interested in that stuff as much as me. <laughs> I bet you. I bet that's not true. There's probably a few out there. I bet there are a few. Um, but now we get to the noontide of of Beleriand. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read this next paragraph, and then we'll talk about uh, what's going on here. And we'll have to step it up. I just realized we're actually moving along pretty quickly here. I mean, not moving along pretty quickly. We pretty probably slowly. need to move on a little quickly. Yeah. Um, so in Beleriand in those days, the elves walked and the rivers flowed and the stars shone and the night flowers gave forth their scents. And the beauty of Melian was as the noon and the beauty of Luthien was as the dawn in spring. 
In Beleriand, King Thingal upon his throne was as the lords of the Maiar, whose power is at rest, whose joy is as an air that they breathe in all their days, whose thought flows in a tide untroubled from the heights to the deeps. In Valerian still, at times, rode Orome the Great, passing like a wind over the mountains, and the sound of his horn came down the leagues of the starlight, and the elves feared him for the splendor of his countenance and the great noise of the onrush of Nahar. But when the Valaroma echoed in the hills, they knew well that all evil things were fled away. <laughs> Good old Orme. Love that prose. That whole oh, paragraph yeah. is just beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I love I... the stars shone, the night flowers. Mm-hmm. I love that we get this interesting, like, time, right? We get night flowers. Beauty of Melian is as noon. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of Luthien is as dawn and spring. Right. So dawn, and... noon, and night. And you know what that makes me think of? This uh, beauty of Luthien as the dawn and spring. That uh-huh. makes me think of uh, the appendix in Return of the King that talks about Arwen's death, where she's described as being like nightfall and winter uh-huh. that comes without a star. Oh, beautiful. Isn't that cool? It's like, and and, and really, remember, Arwen is the tail end of this, yeah, yeah, of this this line that, that rose with Luthien. She's the end, the very end of well. She's the very well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, her she's son. She's the last elf. Yeah. She's the yeah. Wow. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. And then hey, you're here. The writing of Orame. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was out there hunting bad guys the whole time. Tulkus is busy lifting. I don't know what he's doing. he's just uh, doing some push-ups or something. But Orame's <laughs> out here, you know, doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the elves are the elves fear him, but. I love the fact that they knew well that all evil things were yeah. fled far away. You know, they know he's taking care of business. Yeah, he's getting the job done. It's pretty cool. Oh, so sorry. My goodness. <laughs> it is getting late. It is. Um, well, let's take a look real quick here at uh, at a timeline check. We get the very next paragraph, which I'll also cover because it, it gives us some good, um, uh, good geography and gives us um, a transition from this bliss to the end of bliss. Uh, And we'll talk about timelines. So, it came to pass at last that the end of bliss was at hand, and the noontide of Valinor was drawing to its twilight. Or as we've been saying, tick-tock, (laughs) tick-tock. Yep. For as has been told, and as is known to all, being written in lore and sung in many songs, Melkor slew the trees of the Valar with the aid of Ungoliant, and escaped and came back to Middle-earth. Far to the north befell the strife of Morgoth and Ungoliant, but the great cry of Morgoth echoed through Beleriand, and all its people shrank for fear, for they knew not what it foreboded. They heard then the herald of death. <laughs> Soon afterwards, Ungoliant fled from the north and came into the realm of King Thingol, and a terror of darkness was about her. But by the power of Melian she was stayed and entered not into Neldoreth, but abode long time under the shadow of the precipices in which Dorthonian fell southward. And they became known as Arid Gorgoroth, the mountains of terror, and none dared go thither or pass nigh them. There life and light were strangled, and there all waters were poisoned. But Morgoth, as has before been told, returned to Angband and built it anew, and above its doors he reared the reeking towers of Thangorodrim, and the gates of Morgoth, were but 150 leagues distant from the bridge of Menegroth, far and yet all too near. 
Hmm. Wow. wow. There's a lot there. Um, yeah. Nice little recap of some of the things we've seen in recent. Yeah, and, uh, it, and it ties the two timelines together now. Yeah, You know, finally. now we're getting an understanding. And, you know, it's interesting. If we look back at the map, which we're going to do here, where was it that he came, that Morgoth came ashore? The Lamoth. That on your map is all the way in the northwest. Yeah. So look to the west of Doriath and then go north, and you can see the Lamoth up there above Neverast to the west of Hithlum and the west of Dorloman. So and somewhere up there off to the, off the screen would be the Helcodoxae and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, even down further there. off the northwest. Yep, so, yep. so he gets ashore on Lamoth, and that's where that fight took place with Ungoliant. Mm-hmm. And his scream echoed through Beleriand. Mm-hmm. That is massive. From that space. That's a From huge, that space, huge screen. Yeah. His scream could be heard all the way through Beleriand. So Amazing. Hundreds of miles, as we'll get to yeah. when we talk a little bit about scale in a bit. Yeah. Um, amazing. Uh-huh. So uh, she gets uh, she gets into the, the land of Ered Gorgoroth there, the... Just north of Dan of uh, the forest of Neldoreth is Nendon Gortheb, which is the valley between Arid Gorgoroth and the forest, and that's the place you don't want to be. Right. That. Well, talk area. about a place that sounds like what it, uh, Arid Gorgoroth. Arid I mean, that's just a, that's just a ugly, scary word. It really is the Gorgoroth. The mountains of terror, Arid Gorgoroth. Well, yeah. I mean, what other words do we have that sound like that? We have a few. Um, I'm trying to think of others that have that G-O-R, that sort of um, mountain of terror. Is, isn't there a Kirith Gorgor somewhere in Mordor? I think there is. Like a pass, the Pass of Terror? The Pass of, yeah, yeah. I think so. I know that there's other stuff. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, here's a little line that I like, or, well, I don't like, but it's an interesting line. <laughs> Their life and light were strangled. Mm. Well, of course they were. That's what Ungoliant does. That's what Ungoliant does, yeah. She sucks up light. She eats the light. Mm-hmm. So it was a horribly dark place. Um, so now we get a, now we can combine the two timelines and say, oh, this happened at X. So mm-hmm. Morgoth's cry in the Lamoth was 95 Valinorian years after his release, which is about 930 years after he'd been freed. So um, at this point, Luthien has, is a little over 2,900 years old. So okay. when we said this is a long chapter, it's a 3,000-year-long <laughs> chapter. There you go. <laughs> um, but that gives us a timeline, and now we can combine the two. And we're about to see that happen even more uh, with the next chapter. And after mm-hmm. that, of course, they're all merged anyway. Um, so, yeah, just amazing stuff. We um, w- wanted to talk a little bit about distance. Um, yeah, because we see that that Fangoradrim yeah. uh, is 150 leagues from... Uh, from Menegroth. Yeah. Now, that's, far, not, yeah, on, that's not on your map here. Uh, it's going to be north of Anfauglith. Right. It's going to be just off your map, really. Uh, not too yeah. far off your map. But 150 leagues. Now, you know, you might get the question, well, what is a league? Uh, a league is approximately three miles. Right. So when we hear about 150 leagues, you're talking about 450 miles. 450 miles. So it's not it's not next door. No. And you've got a mountain, well, not a mountain range. You've got basically a, a mountain range and a plain or yeah. a, a plateau and then another mountain range between right. you. And, yeah. Um, unless they go through the pass, uh, through the pass to the west um, uh, over Syrian, or if they come through eventually around the east uh, through what would eventually become known as the March of Mithros uh, in a couple right. chapters. So, right. I mean, this know, is a distance that, you know, one could drive or take a train in a day, but they didn't have cars. No, no. So, um, 
So, right. uh, oh, for those of us not in using the imperial system, that's a little over 700 kilometers. Oh, thank you. So, not that I'm... Good catch. I would never... If you told me 700 kilometers, I would say, I can walk that tomorrow. I don't know how long that is. <laughs> it's, it's or like maybe right it takes me a week to drive. I don't know. I have right. no idea. How we have no idea. 700 yeah. kilometers. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so... I, I, yeah, go ahead. I did some, I did some Google Maps on oh, this good. distance. I was about to ask about that. And my... <laughs> I, I came up with a, with a few, actually. Um, not sure we have time for all of them here, but uh, my favorite one that I came up with was uh, for our UK listeners and for Tolkien, which I think is probably most uh, most telling, uh, 460 miles, I think, is the distance from Brighton, which is on the southern coast of England, uh, to Edinburgh, which is mm. in, in southern Scotland, so just right over uh, the border into into Scotland. So uh, Morgoth is about in England away from Menegroth. Okay. That gives so me a good, the, pretty good scale. About, about the distance of England. Which is not um, huge. It's a lot no, closer than I'd want to no, be. No, it's not to, huge. It's about maybe, a, you know, maybe a, again, like a five or six hour train trip, you know, something like yeah, that, yeah. I think. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not that far. No. But it's also not next door either. No, no. But anyway, interesting stuff. Uh, let's see. So we've talked about uh, Melian's power, interestingly, because she hasn't exercised at all yet. Uh, but she was able to keep uh, Ungoliant out, which is good. Um, we'll see, you know, that, that how how long-lasting that is. We'll see. Um, but then we get to the first battle of the Wars of Beleriand. Uh, we're going to try to power through this fairly quickly. But, Sean, I want you to read that um, Now the Orcs That Multiplied um, yep. to uh, in the Wars of Beleriand. Yep. Now the orcs that multiplied and the darkness of the earth grew strong and fell, and their dark lord filled them with a lust of ruin and death. There's his spirit being spent. Right There's there. his spirit being spent. There you go. And they issued from Angband's gates under the clouds that Morgoth sent forth, and passed silently into the highlands of the north. Thence on a sudden, a great army came into Beleriand and assailed King Thingol. Now in his wide realm, many elves wandered free in the wild, or dwelt at peace in small kindreds far sundered, and only about Menegroth in the midst of the land, and along the Falas in the country of the Mariners were their numerous peoples. But the orcs came down upon either side of Menegroth, and from camps in the east between Kalon and Gelion, and west in the plains between Sirion and Narog, they plundered far and wide, and Thingol was cut off from Círdan at Eglarest. Therefore he called upon Denethor, and the elves came in force from Region beyond Aros and from Osiriand and fought the first battle in the wars of Beleriand. My goodness. Well, so you're going to have to look at the map for that and see. Yeah. Indeed, they did do what we just talked about. They came, uh, you know, in a pincher move uh, from. Just swept around Midoriath on both sides, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had to really kind of figure out what they meant by the plains between Syrian and, Nor and Narog, but. If you're looking at the map, that's uh, to the west of Doriath. You see Amonruth, and then you see a, an area called the Talath Dirnan. That looks right. like that would be what they're, what he's referencing there. I think so, yeah. Um, to you know, somewhere south of Dor Loman, um, but mm. but west of Doriath. So they come from there, which means, of course, they must have come through the path, uh, the pass of the Syrian. Right. Um, I guess they could have come through Dor Loman. I don't know. That seems a little too many mountain ranges to go through from from. Uh, uh, thank yeah, God. probably so, yeah. Uh, and then they would have come around through um, that area where the Kelon and the Gelion uh, stem from up in the mountains in the um, mm -hmm. northeast in Himmel. the northeast, yep. So, yeah. Um, so there's that. And then, you know, they get victory. 
uh, just to, to sum up, they get victory, but it was dear bought. Uh, the elves of Osirian were, were absolutely no match for the orcs. Uh, the orcs have iron, um, you know, iron armor, iron shielded, have big oh, spears. The, yeah. Uh, and, of course, the elves of Osirian, as we know, were armed with... Lightly you know, armed. Lightly yeah. armed. I mean, again, we might just say slender bows. Uh, and compare them to the uh, the Teleri in that regard. Yeah, it, it's a it's a slaughter. It's a, it's it had a total to be a slaughter. slaughter. Uh, Denethor cut off. Uh, he fell. Uh, most of his kin, but Thingol does come to his aid and avenges the death. Um, but they they took no king ever again. Uh, mm-hmm. The the elves of Osirian really you know took this deeply, took this loss uh, really hard, uh, and so they actually kind of became. This like stealth, these stealth specialists. They uh, <laughs> they didn't come out in open war anymore. They uh, they were, you know, hiding and they kept themselves by wariness and secrecy. Um, kind of feels to me like the first rangers. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, I know we think of rangers as being you know uh, Numenorians, but you know maybe like the the sort of the first elven. If you think of like a you know a D and D ranger or something right, like that, right? It's the classic, that kind of, that the kind classic of thing, archetype. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because you know I would always roll a half elven ranger, but you know these oh are, yeah me these too are elven of course rangers. what else are you going to do a half elven ranger no are you kidding me I was always a paladin let's just I'm always a paladin I always had to play half, lawful good halfling but, thief of course <laughs> you chaotic little creature it's Bilbo man come on what? it's Bilbo <laughs> I was more a grocer than a burglar <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, so, yeah, so they ended up merging with Thingol. So they became part of the Sindar at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I did think it was interesting to to see elves working together again. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got all these different groups of elves, um, you know, working together, whereas on the other side in in, um, uh, in Amman, you've got the, uh, you know, the real elves of Orange County, you know, <laughs> being all... Being all dramatic. <laughs> seriously, drama queens over here. Um, you know, so I just... You'll never believe what Fingolfin said about Finarfin. Seriously. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, it's so nice to see elves working together, fighting together. Right. Instead of fighting amongst themselves. And getting slaughtered together. <laughs> slaughtered together. <laughs> um, so, let's see. Um, I'll try to just get a little bit of this last bit, uh, next to last paragraph. Uh, when Thingol came again to Menegroth, he learned that the orc host in the west was victorious so this is over by the Phalas, and had driven Círdan to the rim of the sea. Uh, I'm just going to sum up the rest. He withdrew his people uh, to uh, to the fastness of Neldoreth and Region, and Melian put forth her power. Here we go. This is the creation of the girdle. Very important. Mm-hmm. She yes. fenced all that dominion round. So if you zoom in, uh, forest of Neldoreth, I'm sorry, Neldoreth, and the forest of Region. So those are the the two portions there, right about where it says Doriath and right where Menegroth is. So this does not include the forest of Brethel. It doesn't include any of the areas outside the River Aros, the River Mindeb. Uh, it doesn't include Nan Elmoth over to the east. Uh, it's just right. that one little circle right there. Okay. Um, so that none thereafter could pass against her will or the will of King Thingol unless, and this is important, one should come with a power greater than that of Melian the Maya. Hmm. And uh, this inner land, which was long named Eglador, was after called Doriath, the guarded kingdom the land of the girdle. There we go. Within it, there was yet a watchful peace, but without, there was peril and great fear, and the servants of Morgoth roamed at will, save in the walled havens of the Phalas. So this, you know, they won, but then they had to retreat. It was a very Pyrrhic victory. 
Oh yeah, um, yeah. You know, to to borrow another they, Greek thing, um, they survived basically. You yeah. know, they they won. They fought back the orcs, but they're they're now uh, they're they're really not surrounded. Quite un, they're not quite under siege, but it's close. You know, I mean, yeah. they're they're really they're surrounded. They're on, they're on the defense. Let's they really are. They're definitely uh, playing defense at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a prototype Lothlorien, really. This uh, Doriath, isn't it? That's true. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I, think I think we think talked. You came up with that, but you know, I, I, and so I didn't mean to take that from you. But no, I, I, no, that's fine. It's I, I think it's uh, it's I think a it's pocket. true. It's just a yeah. pocket of, uh, of of safety of um, protection. Yeah. Well, yeah. and we know that Galadriel ended up learning a lot from Melian later that's on. That's true. That is true. So you probably figure this is where she got the idea. Very good. Well, well, um, we've we've got a little bit of a closing here. I think we. Yeah, should, you want to take this last paragraph? Yeah, I, I do. I think this is. Uh, uh, this is an important closure, um, and we'll try to keep this under two hours. But new tidings were at hand, which none in Middle-earth had foreseen, neither Morgoth in his pits nor Melian in Menegroth. For no news came out of Amon, whether by messenger or by spirit or by vision and dream after the death of the trees. In this same time, Feanor came over the sea in the white ships of the Teleri and landed in the Firth of Drengist, and there burned the ships at Lascar. So now the timelines come together. Yeah. Um, and after the trees, there's no more messages. Uh, even Melian is going to be cut off uh, from, you know, news from Amon, which presumably yeah. she would have been able to have some sort of access to, uh, enough that she could tell the stories of the Valar and the weavings that were hung about. And that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Never um, thought about that. You know, even though she'd been there since before the Eldar had arrived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's going to be a time of silence now in that regard. Yeah. But, you know, we know that because we know that um, the Valar themselves have fenced themselves in, you know, in an effort to keep the Noldor out. They, um, you know, they're, what, what did, uh, what, what did Mandos say to him? That we will fence oh, you out, that we will yes. fence Valinor against you, not even the echo of your lamentation. That's right. Yeah. So, and, and we'll oh, find out a in, a, in a couple of chapters that they literally do fence them out, that there becomes, yeah. you know, a, a literal physical barrier, but that's uh, in a couple chapters. Yep. For now, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. And as always, Sean and I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And join us again next time when we go back to Valinor for chapter 11 of The Sun and Moon and the Hiding of Valinor. Mm-hmm. And then right back to Middle-earth for the brief chapter of uh, of men when our ancestors will finally come on the scene. But uh, next yep. chapter is when the Valar will uh, not only change the locks on the doors, but build a big security fence around the house and post the uh, keep out Noldor signs. <laughs> <laughs> um, as always, if you need cheap paperbacks to mark up, please use the links on our library page at theprancingponypodcast.com. Uh, we also have links to audiobooks, music CDs, and some other cool things for your Tolkien collection. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. We'd love it if you iTunes users take a moment to write us a review. You know what? We're also on Stitcher uh, on TuneIn. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I'm going to jump in on this for a second. We've managed, uh, despite our our mediocre talent and uh, faces for radio, (laughs) to build a little bit of an audience here. And that's been a very pleasant surprise. But I can still count the number of iTunes reviews on two hands. Um, Here's the thing. The more reviews we get, and and hopefully we're talking about good reviews, uh, the more we're going to show up when people search for Tolkien-related podcasts. Um, I don't know about how that works on other platforms, and I know not everybody's an iTunes user, but if you can post reviews, please do. Uh, throw us a few gems. Hoard them not. <laughs> well said. Thank you, Alan. Good point. 
and thanks to those of you who are visiting us and commenting to us on social media. Uh, we absolutely love the community of listeners and friends we've we found out there. And if you haven't joined us already, please do. Remember, this is the Prancing Pony. And uh, just like the common room at the end, we want everybody to join in the conversation. Yep. Um, so social media is how you do it. You can get current updates, listen to previous episodes, and inter- interact directly with Alan and me on Facebook at the Prancing Pony Podcast or on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod. And you know, social media is a great place to share our podcast as well. Retweet us, uh, share us on your timeline, whatever it takes. Unless, of course, you prefer us toiling in anonymity. Um, (laughs) One last thing as always, don't forget to send your questions, comments, or your summer party tips from Tulkas and Nessa to theprancingponypodcast at gmail.com, and we'll try to get them into our next episode. Ah, Well... Two hours is still far too short a time to spend amongst such admirable listeners, but until next time. Farewell, friends. <laughs>